0: From the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West.
1: The Chamberlain,
0: he's got it. Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid-court strike. To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. And Magic Johnson is on there celebrating. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe. From way outside. Got it! Oh, yes. man! Gets it to LeBron. For three for the win. Yes! LeBron dear and rings were handed out like candy. I one. Here's yes! all over, all it's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bouguet, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. I'm your host, Garrett Bouguet, and with me this week, I've got a very special guest. He's a first-time guest on the program, a two-time sports business classroom alum, and uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Corn Hoops. That's K-O-R-N Hoops. Brett Kornfeld. Brett, thanks so much for, for coming on. Thanks for having me, Garrett. Very, very
1: excited to talk Western Conference playoff basketball.
0: Yeah, so uh, I, I did an Eastern Conference preview with Ryan Edwards just the other day. Very excited to break down the Western Conference. I'm always a, a little bit more excited to watch the Western Conference side of the bracket because typically the teams are a little bit better over there. So uh, it's going to be very similar. If you listen to the Eastern Conference side, we're going to do some of the same stuff. Breaking down the matchups we will each sort of act as uh, you know the head coach of a particular team in each matchup. But uh, Brett, we're going to start with the, the matchup that we don't technically know yet. It's the, the 1-8 matchup in the West between the number one seed Utah Jazz and the either the eight seed Warriors or the nine seed Grizzlies. And they of course play on Thursday night to determine who gets to match up against the best team in the regular season. So first off, Brett, as far as you know, the the possible matchups for Utah, which team out of those two do you imagine is going to be the the more challenging opposition?
1: Yeah, so so not to, you know, find a new way to skin the cat. But I I mean, I think it's pretty clear that if you're the Jazz, you're rooting for the Grizzlies in the West playing game. Um, You know, we could break this down a million ways into different coverages and talent levels and whatever. But the truth of the matter is, just one team has Steph Curry and Draymond and the other team doesn't and it really doesn't get much more simple than that. Steph is a bad matchup for the way the Jazz are effective at defense. Um, That's not to say that they wouldn't be able to defend the Warriors. It's just he clearly presents a significantly different challenge in a way that no one on the Grizzlies will present. Um, In our serpentine draft for teams, you got the Jazz, so I would kind of lead this over to you in terms of, Ah, uh, where you think the Jazz schematically would land uh, versus Golden State versus the Grizzlies, and kind of how you think they'd handle each of those challenges over seven games?
0: Yeah, and I mean the the regular season matchups indicate uh, exactly what you're saying. Utah went one and two against the Warriors, three and zero against the Memphis Grizzlies, and you're absolutely right that the the Steph problem. I mean, Steph is a problem for every team in the NBA but uh, especially those teams that, that like to do that drop back defensive scheme uh, with the center hanging around the basket because Steph is very accurate from 35 feet away. So uh, that obviously is a huge issue. And then the Draymond effect as well. You know, I, I think Utah would have a lot easier time dealing with, you know, trying to score around the likes of Jonas Valanciunas for the Grizzlies than they will scoring with Draymond. And, of course, we saw in that. Brilliant game uh, last night between the, uh, the, the Lakers and Warriors that uh, Steve Kerr, especially in playoff mode, is willing to go extended minutes with Green at the five. And he just was absolutely, a, uh, you know, wrecking everything that the Lakers are trying to do offensively. So, yeah, just, you know, just those top two guys for Golden State are, are obviously a huge concern for Utah and then the supporting cast for the, the Warriors has been playing better as well with the likes of Jordan Poole, Juan Toscano-Anderson, and, and Andrew Wiggins.
1: I, I think that the main thing where, you know, kind of projecting forward should the Warriors win, and, and they're really the challenging series because I think we both think that, you know, should it be Memphis, this would be a pretty relatively handable series for for Utah. But if it's, if it's Golden State, you know, kind of leading into the format that we're going to use with the other series, Um, You know, you just mentioned it with the supporting cast, but it really is going to come down to how much can Golden State get ball handling when Steph is off the floor? And this is really the question in pretty much every game the Warriors have played this season. Um, They've gotten some games where Jordan Poole has kind of filled that void. They've gotten some games where Andrew Wiggins has provided a little bit of shake off the dribble. Um, They still don't have like a true creator of shots for other people. Um, Draymond's obviously a phenomenal ball mover and advantage player, but not when Steph is off the court as a kind of create for other people player. Um, but I do think that those are the guys where should we get a one eight matchup, um, that would honestly be one of the closer, you know, odds wise one eight matchups in a really long time. Um, I think that those are the guys that you're going to see that'll have a pretty dramatic impact on the series and vice versa. The guys that have kind of played above their pay grade for the jazz this year. Um, most notably, probably Jordan Clarkson. Um, a guy where they rely a lot on his offensive creativity. And when he gets it going um, in a bench role, they are significantly more effective than when he kind of reverts back to the pre-Utah Jordan Clarkson version. So it would be an interesting series. Um, We'll see how the warrior grizzly game kind of churns out tomorrow. And, you know, one game single elimination basketball is weird. It's hard to pick against Stefan Draymond's team and really any of these kind of areas, but um, that's kind of the series that I guess is more of a wait and see until the dust is settled.
0: Yeah, and the, the actual matchup between the Grizzlies and Warriors will be fascinating also because, again, they, they just played in the last game of the regular season, and, and I think that that benefits Memphis more than it benefits the Warriors. You know, getting to not only – I think that was John Morant's first game playing against Steph Curry. A lot of those guys on that Grizzlies team's that was their first time matching up against him, and, and that can be overwhelming when you're playing against a player that good. Uh, so the fact that they got to see him so recently and and got that experience, I think it's gonna make that playing game pretty competitive. And you know, yes, I think we we we've already stated that we both agree Golden State is is definitely the bigger challenge for Utah. But this Memphis Grizzlies team is is really solid and and deep as well.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that one of the things that's noticeable when you watch Memphis right now and, and it's been clear and it was especially clear in the game they just played versus San Antonio is just how much more comfortable Jaron has gotten since he's come back. And he's a real lift to their team in terms of talent quality on both ends of the floor. Um, especially when he's shooting well, I mean, when he's shooting from the outside, the floor spacing, it provides for job the length that provides them. Um, and then one of my personal favorite players in the league, Kyle Anderson, um, just a really, really good all around role player for really any playoff caliber team. Um, has been really good down the stretch for Memphis was really good in that play in game against the Spurs, a couple nice blocks, um, knocks down three pointers. Obviously he's always been a great passer since the UCLA days. Um, so just a really fun team. Um, I think that, you know, aesthetically Memphis versus Utah would honestly be a great, like basketball nerd series, essentially just for all the people that have like weird ish players that they love to watch kind of on an individual level and the team level basketball. Um, but it's definitely interesting to think about in terms of, you know, now that the Warriors have kind of shown their hand, that was a monster comeback by Memphis in the regular season classic. Now can we get them kind of over the hump? Can Memphis kind of climb that Stephen Draymond ladder to to push themselves into the playoffs? I don't know. I wouldn't predict it, but we're going to find out tomorrow.
0: Yeah. Speaking of the whole uh, the fun aesthetic of watching Memphis, Utah. Yeah, I, I think the the most interesting part for me would be, you know, the Grizzlies are not a very good shooting team. They don't attempt a lot. They don't make a lot. Uh, you mentioned Jaron Jackson Jr. being there certainly helps. But, uh, you know, they're still very reliant on Ja Morant getting to the rim. Jonas Valanciunas scoring on post-ups and getting offensive rebounds. And with Rudy Gobert there, that's the, that's the thing that, that would be really fascinating to watch. Obviously, that's Gobert's strength, taking that stuff away. So uh, I guess let's let's get to our predictions for that series. So in both scenarios, you know, who do you have winning the series and in how many games? So uh, I'll
1: start with the Memphis side of this. I think that if Memphis kind of squeaks past Golden State tomorrow, um, I'm going to take the Jazz in five. Um, Even though I think Memphis is a really fun team, um, I just think that the Jazz at full capacity, they just move the ball so well and they're so interconnected defensively. Um, And as you kind of just mentioned, Memphis's lack of shooting really starts to kind of hold out against teams that can clamp down on you. Utah is one of those teams they defend the rim as well, if not better than anyone in the league. Um, They have a playoff built team. Every player on their team is a plus defender in their starting lineup. So I think that that's a four or five game series, uh, even though I love watching Memphis.
0: Yeah, I am. I am pretty much in agreement. I'll, I I will go with the more, you know, uh, optimistic for, for Utah and say that that'll be a sweep, but yeah, I could, I could see, you know, especially if, for instance, John Morant just has a game where he shoots the ball well from outside. He certainly will get plenty of opportunities. I think they'll leave him out there. Uh, if, if he has a, as a game shoots, well, maybe Jaron Jackson jr. Has a big game. Um, yeah, they could take one, but I'll I'll say Utah in a sweep.
1: So then we, we, we could take the golden state one, which is where it gets really tough. Um, because you get to this point where it's like, am I really, am I really going to pick against Stephen Curry in a first round series where I don't, love the offensive creator for Utah. Now, Donovan Mitchell has been fantastic in the playoffs in the last few years. Um, was fantastic as a rookie was excellent in the Denver series last year. Um, I love Joe Ingalls. He's excellent. They have a lot of guys that are really good, but we're, we're also talking about a generational guard and we're really talking about a generational two man combo with Draymond. Um, I think I'm leaning golden state and seven as crazy. Um, now, I think Utah on the aggregate is probably a better team. And if they, you know, played a gazillion times, they would probably win more games on average. Um, but for some reason, it's just hard for me to pick against Stefan Draymond in a first round playoff series where I don't absolutely love the best player on Utah as an offensive creator. Um, so I would lean Golden State in seven in that series. Obviously wouldn't be surprised if, if Utah took it, would be surprised if Golden State took it in like a, quicker series but that's kind of my
0: lean right now on that series. We had Donovan Mitchell just practiced apparently today for the first time and he he said it's his goal or that's the goal he was quoted as saying as to to playing in game 1. So um, there, there is a question mark around that, and not only will he play right off the bat, but then, you know, is he going to just be able to be the Donovan Mitchell we've seen for most of the season right off the bat? There, there could be a significant amount of rust there as well. Um, I, I still think just the, the amount of playmakers that Utah has, like pretty much, you know, they've got three or four guys on the floor at all time that can dribble, pass, and shoot. And I, I think that's just going to be a little bit too much, plus the fact that Gobert is going to be taking away a lot of the easy stuff that the Warriors like to get inside. So I'm going Utah in six. Um, but uh, I, I certainly think, yeah, just with the, the, the power of Steph arguably being the best offensive playoff player in the NBA and Draymond arguably being the best defensive playoff player in the NBA, that they are, are going to be a problem. And and yes, uh, absolutely, Utah will be rooting for Memphis to win that game uh, tomorrow night. But uh, let's uh, let's move on to another series. And Brett, I'll I'll leave it up to you. You can pick what uh, what matchup you're most excited to talk about next.
1: So I think the one I think the one that's going to be the best, and we'll, we'll save that is going to be Phoenix versus LA. But I think the one I'm most excited about is Portland versus Denver. Okay. Um, Portland opened up as a favorite in this series, which I was a little bit surprised by. Um, even given the fact that there's no Jamal Murray, um, Portland is a weird team because their record is a little bit thrown by the fact that they've kind of had moving parts in and out of the lineup all season. Uh, they had a 25 game stint without CJ McConnell. They missed Nurkic for a pretty extended period of time. Um, and they also made a pretty substantial mid-season trade by, you know, Portland standards. They made a leap here, uh, trading Gary Trent Jr. in the pick for Norman Powell, um, I was a big fan on deadline day of that move. And then also this is that time of year where you acquired Rob Cummington for these games. Uh, obviously he's not the type of player, you know, that wows anyone in a box score or, you know, you don't watch him play if you're not, you know, super closely watching the game and be like, wow. But it's these kind of playoff series where his versatility his length, his like weird ability to protect the rim at a high level uh, starts to kind of come out a little bit more. Um, so I'm fascinated by this because as as you just mentioned with Steph, I think that Jokic uh, might be the best offensive player in the playoffs as well. Um, he obviously has a claim given the season that he's had and Portland has a guy who can at least make him work. Um, I think it's fair to say that nobody really stops him anymore. Uh, it's just, you know, how hard do they have to make him work to get his points and assists and, and creation. Um, but I do think that that's the most fascinating series for me from a, this is a 6-3, but it wouldn't necessarily be an upset anymore, given the Murray matchup. And I, I think the series is relatively 50-50, and I'm excited to get into it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So for this matchup, I'm going to be acting as Mike Malone and the Denver Nuggets. Brett will be uh, acting as uh, the Portland Trailblazers. So uh, just, to, just to quickly run down the some of the team stats. Denver finished the year at 47 and 25, fifth in offense, 11th in defense. They were sixth in the NBA in net rating at positive 5.5. Portland, uh, five games behind Denver at 42 and 30 second in the NBA in offensive rating, according to cleaning the glass 29th in defense and ninth in net rating at positive 2.4, which that, that has improved a lot since that, uh, since that trade you mentioned at the deadline, they were kind of basically even at that point and they've gotten to, you know, positive 2.4, which is a pretty significant jump. Uh, as far as the regular season matchups, Denver won two of the three contests with uh, both wins though, coming in pretty tight fashion. And their only loss was the the game at the end of the year where I, I don't believe Denver was trying to win that one. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. This should be an absolutely fascinating series. Um, the, the big concern I have, and, and I think part of the reason why Portland, as you mentioned, is favored by, by a lot of people is not only is Murray gone, but we still don't know fully what's going on with Will Barton, who was also struggling with an injury prior to last year's playoffs. And a lot of people are thinking, oh, he'll come back at some point in that Utah series in the first round. They made it to the conference finals, and he never returned. Uh, so, so there is a question mark as far as that is concerned, and then PJ Dozier as well. Uh, it might might miss the series. We don't know, but uh, yeah, it, it leaves this Nuggets team really short on on guards and and guys that can handle the basketball, which is what you want around the the likely MVP in Jokic.
1: So there's, there's some interesting stuff with Denver that I think that, and and I had mentioned this in some of the film I was watching on this series that, uh, that I wanted to get into with you. So, so one of the things, you know, we had laid out in the format was how these teams like to defend pick and roll. And it's an especially unique matchup just because Dame is so good at both dribbling into long threes out of picks and coming off handoffs in pick and roll. Um, and when they have Nurkic, it's a much different experience than when they have Cantor because he's such a great playmaker as a passer. Um, So one of the things the Nuggets were kind of employing, not in in really a way to protect Jokic, more as a way to kind of encourage mid-rangers, is they definitely did more of this against Portland where they dropped Jokic really deep into the paint. Um, I noticed a couple times on film where he's backpedaling, the screen's being set, you know, maybe four or five feet up above the three-point break, and Jokic is all the way down by the key. Um, And basically, they're just telling Compazzo, or they're going to be telling an Austin Rivers, hey, you're getting over and you're trailing and you're locking. Um, like we're not going under on Damian Lillard. You're going to get over. We're going to live with short rolls from Nurkic. Now, granted, in in a couple of the instances I watched, they actually did a really good job fighting over the screen and getting to Dame. The counter to that, which Portland was able to adjust to, is Nurkic is really good at then kind of feeding Dame into a back cut for a layup because Jokic has to then come up to play Nurkic and they get an empty back line. So so that's something I'm going to be paying attention to a little bit more in this series. You you mentioned the health. And the the biggest thing for me post-trade is the starting five for Portland played 370 minutes after they made the Norman Powell trade. That's Dame, CJ, uh, Covington, Norman Powell, and Nurkic. 370 minutes, their net rating was 12.9. That is ridiculously good. Now, on both ends of the floor, too. Um, But really, we're talking about um, it being driven by a 120.5 offensive rating. Um, So that team is just really, really deadly. And and I think what would encourage me most uh, playing Terry Stotts in this situation is just, this isn't a full strength Denver team. And I, and I think you mentioned it. I actually think the loss of PJ Dozier is really important in this aspect because he's a pretty versatile defender, good length, uh, high IQ guy. Um, and I just think that where these problems are going to present themselves is that Portland now doesn't just have two creators like they've had in the past. Gary Trent Jr. Was obviously an awesome role player next to Damon C.J., made a ton of big shots and catch and shoot. Um, but Norm is just a different level of self-creation that they didn't have before. And being able to put three guys on the floor that can create the Nuggets just don't really have a great personnel guy for Norman Powell or really CJ McCollum at this point. Um, especially if they're going to be blitzing Damian Lillard a lot. He was one of the most blitz players in the league in pick and roll this year, which Denver doesn't love to do with Jokic. So it's going to be interesting to see kind of how they react to those three guard lineups. Do they go super small, kind of at with three guards around Porter Jr. and Nurkic, um, or do they kind of try to heighten up a little bit, essentially? Um, and that's where the value of Rob Cummington comes in. So, so those are some of the things in pick and roll coverage I'm going to be looking for. What did you notice when you were watching uh, some of the some of the clips from their early regular season matchups?
0: Well, yeah, I was gonna I was gonna bring up the the I believe it was. 2019 series between the two in the second round that classic series there was a four overtime game in that series it went seven McCollum I think went for 37 or or something in game seven and one of the things that was was very evident about that series was Denver was not going to let Lillard beat them and they were they were very focused on either blitzing or just you know coming up showing high and making Lillard get the ball out of his hands and in that series they did not have Nurkic so they didn't have that great short role guy, although Cantor did a reasonable job with that. Um, and and then yeah, they didn't have guys like Norman Powell, where you know if you if you blitz and then they're playing four on three and you're scrambling off of that, it's that much more valuable to have a guy like Norman Powell who can then attack that guy chasing out, closing out to him, and 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 that's the big upgrade I think with Powell over Gary Trent Jr. Whereas Trent Jr. is mostly just a shooter. Powell can hit the shots, of course, but he can also make the next play and continue the advantage situation. So that is, uh, that's, that's pretty important. And then, um, you know, you, you brought up the idea of, of the, the nuggets and you saw some of that in, in this, these regular season matchups of them dropping real deep. And yeah, the challenge with that is, and Composo is a good player to, And he's, he's really good at getting over screens, but the challenge with that is guys like Nurkic Cantor, solid screeners. And if they connect on that screen and Jokic is 10, 15 feet away from Lillard, uh, you're, you're going to get destroyed on that uh, on that action.
1: So I think that one of the other things that was really interesting in watching how these teams play is and I'm glad you brought up that 2019 series is that these teams are intimately familiar with each other in a playoff setting. The coaches are familiar with each other. The best players are familiar with each other. I mean, obviously Nurkic is incredibly familiar with Jokic's game. So there's just real kind of individual matchup stuff here um, that's going to be really fun to watch, but the biggest swing, and I'm sure it's going to come up on your end and it definitely comes up on my end. And you know, it was, what's the biggest fear on, on your end as a coach? And if I'm Terry Stotts, it's Michael Porter, Jr. Michael Porter, Jr., this season has taken a substantial, substantial leap, even from where he was in last year's playoffs. You know, obviously, if I had a ballot for most improved player, that would 100% have been my number two guy behind Julius Randle. He is right up there and deserving that award. His shooting splits this year are ridiculous. 54% from the field, 44.5% from three on high volume. And I think one of the things that, Um, in having some conversations with people about Porter Jr.'s game that has been so encouraging, and if you're the Blazers, so scary, is that the game is clearly slowing down for him, right? He's no longer kind of rushing into his own actions. He doesn't feel like he has to get his own. He's clearly settled into that role of, this is Jokic's team. I'm going to get mine playing off him. I'm going to make the right reads. And, And just kind of adopting that mindset as a player, has completely helped transform his game because he's taking better shots. He has been unbelievable in pull-ups this year. I think he was third in pull-up efficiency in the NBA this year. Um, and when you talk about a guy who is 6'10", 6'11", that can shoot like that off the dribble, there is no good matchup on Portland for him. Um, and this kind of comes at the expense of, well, why did Portland trade for Robert Cummington? If, isn't he supposed to be the guy for this matchup? And And it kind of gets to the point where, Covington isn't actually an excellent isolation defender. His value is obviously in the versatility and all the different things he can do at the rim, but in kind of a more condensed manner, he's not an outstanding perimeter guy in the way that, you know, Fiebel is, or the way Mikael Bridges is, or prime Kawhi was, he's much more of just a Jack of all trades can do so much good. And like in a pinch, you love having him being able to switch out on a guard. But if Michael Porter Jr. gets going in this series, the Blazers are going to have significant problems because you're talking about a forward lineup that looks like Covington. And then after that is Carmelo Anthony, Derek Jones Jr. And if you're calling Norman Powell a forward, Norman Powell. And those are just guys that are going to have absolutely no chance to guard Michael Porter Jr., especially when Jokic is hunting him and looking to exploit mismatches and generating switches off of that. So kind of if, if we're talking about the X factor, On my side, for who I think scares me the most from Denver, 100% would be Michael Porter Jr. in the series. I think there's a misconception that the Murray injury led to him playing better. And if you look at his splits kind of pre-Murray injury, um, I think Murray got hurt on April 12th. And if you go back even kind of the month before or the two months before once he started playing. So if you look from February 12th to the game that Murray gets injured, right so like even when he was a third option you're talking about a guy who had 54 41 splits was averaging 19 a game. this guy has been an absolute assassin all season um and i just think that jokic is going to get his it's not even something that portland's really going to be able to do anything about but if they can control michael porter jr and figure out a way to condense his scoring impact they'll have a really good shot to win the series if they don't they're in huge trouble
0: yeah that's a great point i had that in my notes as well and and if I'm Portland, I'm putting Powell on him in the starting lineup. And yes, Powell is short, but he does have a pretty long wingspan. He's strong. He's quick. Um, the, the hope would be that he could sort of get into Porter and make him uncomfortable in the same way, like Drew holiday, those Marcus smarts make guys uncomfortable that are a little bit taller and just kind of live with the fact that, well, Michael Porter Jr. is six ten. He can shoot over anybody. <laughs> He'll shoot over Robert Covington as well. Yeah. But the the value then of having Covington on a guy like Aaron Gordon is you can allow him to then play off, make Aaron Gordon beat you from three, and you know that allows Covington to utilize his strengths on the defensive end. Um, another thing that I wanted to to talk about as far as as far as Denver's pick and roll strategy against the Blazers is I think one of the things, you know, it, it, it seems kind of counterintuitive to say, well, make Nurkic beat you, but, uh, you know, because he is a guy that has pretty good mobility, he's a good passer, but I would make Nurkic beat me as a scorer out of the short roll. And because Denver in that front court has so much size with Jokic, Gordon, and Porter Jr., hopefully, you know, even if you are leaving – leaving Nurkic momentarily that one of those three guys can get there late enough to make it so that it's not just a dunk for Nurkic at the rim. It's a contested shot at the basket. And that's probably Nurkic's biggest weakness as an offensive player.
1: And and I think you just hit it perfectly because I was looking, as I said earlier, at kind of the post deadline numbers for a lot of these teams. And, And one of the things I noticed was exactly what you just mentioned in terms of Nurkic's unique ability to kind of be a short roller and pick off passes to the three point line. So, so something kind of worth noting, um, post deadline, Portland took the fifth highest rate in the NBA of non corner threes. We're talking just above the break three pointers and they hit the second highest rate. This is a team that shoots really well from that spot. And so I agree a hundred percent. If I'm looking from, you know, your point of view and the, and the Malone point of view, I want to make sure that, I'm not digging down on his short rolls. I'm making Nurkic shoot floaters. I'm making him hit mid-range shots. I'm turning it into a game where it's played from there. Now, Portland's guards, McCollum, Lillard, these guys have awesome in-between games. Carmelo, awesome in-between game. But the guy you want kind of generating scoring impact, I think if you're Denver, is definitely Nurkic. And so I think it's worth pointing out what you said. This is a team that they have a big guy that can really pass. And you want to make their big scores in a way that they're not
0: exactly aligned to do, given the flow of their current offense. Now, looking on the other side of the floor, you know, when when we're discussing Portland trying to defend the Nuggets. One of the things that I think is a a bit of an advantage for Portland is that, um, you know, a guy like Enos Cantor, he his biggest weakness is his mobility. And, you know, if you get him stretched out on the perimeter, he is a liability. But, you know, in this particular matchup, especially without Murray, potentially without Barton, the Nuggets don't have a lot of guys that you're worried about, oh, are just going to blow by our bigs on the perimeter. Uh, so really, a lot of the, the defensive value that you need against the Nuggets is, oh, can, can they defend Jokic at all in the post? And frankly, that's probably if, if Cantor is even OK or slightly above average at anything defensively, it's his post defense. So, so
1: one of the things I would say that's been really interesting about this conversation, and, and I think that this is something that you're seeing a lot in the discussion about the series is we haven't really gotten even into the mention of Aaron Gordon yet, right? And this is a guy that, you know, when they acquired him, most of his value kind of was as this Swiss army knife filling the Jer- Jeremy Grant rant, Grant role. They've been a lot better since they acquired him. He was awesome post deadline. Um, He's been an awesome fit with Jokic and I think a ton of his value comes on this end of the floor um, because he's just such a great player. And I think if we're looking at how Portland's going to defend pick and roll in this series, I agree. I think that the fact that the Denver guards don't have a ton of shake off the dribble, especially when we're talking about Campazo, who's a nice player and has had a nice season. Um, I think Austin Rivers is probably going to see some time in this series. Um, but really what we're going to be talking about is those three guys in the front court. We're talking about Jokic, MPJ, and Gordon, And I'm curious to see how much pick and roll is run this series where Jokic is the one initiating the pick and roll. Obviously, you know, a a play they love to run when he's healthy is that Jokic Murray five, one pick and roll, because it's just such a unique set where Murray's a good screen setter. He's comfortable as a short roller, comfortable in the mid range, them not having that kind of wrinkle. I'm curious, do we see a lot of five, four pick and roll in this series? Do we see a lot of five, three pick and roll in this series? Um, I think that's where they're going to try and create mismatches, right? Because that's not the strength of the Blazers. Obviously, Nurkic is a good pick-and-roll defender as the big guy, but if you're putting him in the initial action and forcing him to fight over, I'm curious to see how Portland adjusts. Are they going to switch Covington or whoever else is in there? Because as you said, right, if Norman Powell is the player starting on MPJ as the three, that's not really a switchable situation on Jokic or you're in monster trouble. So how they defend those actions is something that I'm going to be watching for, especially in the first two games of this series. And kind of on the Denver side, how much do they lean on those actions as a counter, given the fact that they don't have this awesome pick and roll guard that they normally have to lean on to create offense out of those sets?
0: Yeah, you make a lot of great points. Yeah, the, the idea of, you know, if, if I'm Denver, yeah, I'm running a lot of the Jokic-Gordon Yep. And roll so because then you can have MPJ as the floor spacer he's obviously not you know the defender isn't going to leave him to try and defend that action um, but you know another thing as as Portland defending those sets is I am very much going to make uh, Facundo Campazo beat us from outside you know he shot a reasonable percentage but he has a pretty slow release he's obviously a short guy as well Uh, And this will be his first playoff experience, despite the fact that he's a a veteran, has played in Europe for a long time. So he's a guy that I would would come off of. And yeah, so it's going to be fascinating. How much can Jokic take advantage of the fact that, oh, you've got you've got uh, a C.J. McCollum or a Norman Powell on an Aaron Gordon, a Michael Porter Jr. in terms of just throwing those lobs up as they cut to the rim? Uh, that that certainly is going to be something that uh, will will potentially decide the series.
1: It's it's a really fascinating as we got into just kind of counter punching matchup here where Denver has such a significant advantage in the front court and Portland has such a significant advantage in the back court in ways that you don't see in you know most playoff series. Ironically, I would say two of those happened in the West this year, um, but. In most cases, it's just not such a distinct advantage. It's usually a little bit more dispersed um, in terms of where the best players come from. But it's just going to be fascinating to see, you know, how does Portland adjust? Do they start by sending a double at Jokic? I am of the camp that you do not double Jokic. Um, He will pick you apart in every way. His processing speed is just ridiculous. He hits three-point shooters in the corner in the shooting pocket pretty much at will all season this year. Um, if you come off and you try to dig and get back, he sees it. He's got absolutely enormous hands to palm the ball. He has look away passes in his arsenal. Um, so I just think that at a certain point, you're going to have to commit to playing straight up to him and you're going to have to just live with him taking shots through Nurkic and he's going to score a lot. That's going to happen when you have, you know, the most likely MVP of the league. Um, but it's just something where, you know, pick your poison. Would you rather get picked apart by his passing? Hitting you know Porter Jr. for open shots and guards for open shots, or would you rather live with him shooting contested shots? And and as you said, I I think that the adjustment with the guards is going to be going under for Portland. I think that you know if Camposo or Austin Rivers happen to have an outlier shooting series, you know God bless them. That's going to be NBA basketball. But I think you'll you'll sleep better at night knowing that you know the guys that beat you were those two guys, as opposed to you know Jokic, Porter Jr., Gordon. Uh, in this series. So, so I think on that end, we have that pretty well covered.
0: Well, yeah, and Jokic, you know, this year, I think one of the reasons why he's, he's taken a leap and is the favorite and might win the unanimous MVP award is that he's gotten more aggressive looking for his own shot. And, uh, you know, but there's still an element I feel like with him where he doesn't want to just, you know, back down and try to shoot 10 straight possessions. You know, he is an unselfish player. So, yeah, if I'm Portland, especially again, as I as I mentioned, I think, you know, Nurkic and Cantor are reasonably solid post defenders. I uh, yeah, I, I, I don't double his greatest strength as his passing. Uh, if, if I am going to show help. Yeah, it'll be with one of the weaker shooters like a compasso. But I'm not leaving MPJ. You know, if Will Barton's out there, probably not leaving him. Uh, So, so yeah, it'll be it'll be fascinating. But the other the other big thing that I think will determine this series is the bench play. And these two teams have very, very drastically different sort of philosophies in terms of what they want from their bench with Denver. It very much is, you know, especially when P.J. Dozier was healthy is we want defense. You know, they're bringing Paul Millsap and uh, and Dozier and Monte Morris and and. Jamichael Green all guys that are solid defensive guys and they've had they've had some great defensive success I mentioned they moved up to 11th in in defensive rating in large part because that that uh, bench group started to really lock teams down, whereas you look at Portland, and they are bringing in Enos Cantor and Carmelo Anthony and, and Fernie Simons guys that are just like, you know, below average to straight up bad defensive players but their idea is oh, well, we're, we're the second offense in the NBA we're just going to outscore you so that battle is going to be so crucial and, and which group wins out
1: and I, and I think that one of the more interesting things in terms of just how these teams operate from a lineup perspective is and you mentioned this kind of in that first series we talked about um, but but what you see that, that really changes everything is the minute staggering and the willingness of coaches to kind of up the big players' minutes. And you create better lineups just simply by staggering their minutes and having them on the court more. So, I mean, you're rarely going to see a lineup from Portland or Denver that doesn't have two of those guys on the court um, in these minutes. You're going to see them. You're going to see minutes where, you know, maybe for Portland, Howell and McCollum are both off or CJ's by himself, but those minutes are going to be few and far between, I think. And similarly with Denver, I would be very surprised if you see a ton of minutes um, in this series where there's no Jokic, Gordon, MPJ, maybe in the early kind of feel out parts of game one and game two. um, I think you might see more pure rotations. And then as the series kind of winds down and the coaches get into who they really trust, I think you'll start to see a lot more staggering and, and guys dipping into the 41-minute mark, 42-minute mark, where there's not a ton. Something interesting that um, was at least worth looking at was I was looking at the splits with Dame, Powell, and McCollum, so taking out for Covington and them. Um, Those lineups were still above water with Dame um, this year. Even with McCollum, obviously with McCollum and Lillard on the court, those lineups were really effective. The three of them were super effective. But in almost all of the instances, those lineups were above water. Except the PAL CJ combo, which I think is really interesting and going to be really critical in this series. The CJ Norman PAL lineups without Dame this year, 266 minutes minus 4.6 net rating. That's not great. Now, granted, you could say they were getting familiar with playing with each other. This was a post deadline move, but that's something that at least has to be on Stott's mind when he's thinking about playing. You know, okay, how am I going to stagger Dame with PAL versus CJ with PAL? CJ tends to run the offense really well when he's kind of out there by himself. He's done it before in a lot of playoff games. Um, Pal's obviously been an absolutely awesome compliment, um, you know, this year to both of those guys when they're all on the court together, but something to monitor. I, I think you hit it best. This is going to be a really interesting series. And by the way, I probably should have given some credit earlier. Monty Morris is also a really awesome bench guard. Um, I had mentioned Austin rivers, but Monty Morris is also definitely going to play a lot in this series. I'll say from the Portland side, I am definitely concerned about the bench. Um, at this point, I, it's not that I, I think he's not a good teammate or or is you know slow on the development curve. Those things are all possible, but um, I'm just not an Anthony Simons guy at this point. Um, I talked a bunch this year about how I was really hoping Portland was going to upgrade their backup point guard position, um, even in like a small way, just to get a, a veteran that had playoff experience, didn't have to be like an outstanding veteran, just someone that was a little bit more of an upgrade than Anthony Simons, who's unpredictable. And I only say that because you're, you're kind of already bringing in some wildcard play players off the bench with Carmelo and Derek Jones and guys like that. Um, so it's just one of those things where I think Denver has a pretty significant bench advantage. I am really curious how much Stotts lets his bench play without Dame guiding it. That is like one of the more fascinating um, coaching plots to me in this series. I would not be surprised at all if we saw Dame damn in games, you know, three, four, five, six, seven in the 40, 41, 42 minute, uh, range of any capacity wouldn't shock me if we saw it go higher. Um, this is a guy who has just freakish level conditioning and so does McCollum even post coming off the entry. So I just think that those are things that, you know, the bench impact for Portland, um, is probably going to be less just because I think we're going to see a pretty significant uptick in the starters minutes. Whereas I think Denver, there's a real chance that their bench plays a pretty good amount, even if we see the top three guys playing more.
0: Yeah. I'm not a big fan of Simon's either. I will note though, that he has shot the ball well this year. Yeah. I think he had a game where he hit eight or nine threes and uh, yeah, he doesn't do much beyond that. He's a, he's a, you know, a minus as a defensive player, but he, he is at least providing some, some sort of an offensive boost a little bit to their, to their bench units. And your, your commentary about the, um, the, the C.J. and Powell minutes without Lillard is, is very fascinating to me. And I wonder how much of that is the fact that they're also then playing with Cantor and Mello. Because <laughs> I just think that in general, that's probably more the problem than C.J. and Powell. <laughs> Um, because oftentimes you're seeing as much as uh, mellow has been a good um a good three-point shooter he he still likes to go to his mid-range bag and yes he'll he'll sometimes have some highlights and look like the old mellow but that's not efficient offense especially when you're comparing it to what portland normally does on an offensive possession
1: so in an interesting an interesting thing on that um and and that's honestly a, a worthwhile point to look at but that four man combo of Powell McCollum, Cantor and Anthony. And I'm going to make sure that I uh, separate out Lillard as well. Cause that could be kind of a, a smoking gun there where Lillard was also on the court with those guys. Um, but no Powell, CJ, Cantor, Carmelo, a nine net rating. Now this is in a super 101 minute sample. So this is not, this would be some classic small sample size theater that, you know, isn't, super indicative of anything or how those lineups played, but I'm, I'm just curious kind of more. So um, maybe that's the combo that Stotts rolls out. Although I definitely have my concerns with a front court that features, you know, two real minus minus defenders out there at the same time. Um, As much love as I have for Carmelo Anthony uh, that's a, that's a tough thing to overcome, especially in a playoff series where uh, the other team has really good passers kind of all over the floor.
0: Yeah. And we've, we've kind of, uh, we've kind of talked about a lot of the guys that, that could, could be an X factor in this series already. You know, I had in my notes, Will Barton obviously is a big one. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and frankly, if, if I felt Will Barton was fully healthy and playing at his best, I, you know, getting into spoiler territory, I would probably favor Denver like uh, pretty, pretty easily, but, um, that that question mark is is a is playing a, a pretty big role in, in sort of my feelings about the outcome of this series but yeah Austin Rivers as you said especially if Barton isn't able to play he's got to step up and be big for Denver and then yeah Norman Powell I think is huge and then Carmelo Anthony you know how many in this series how many mid-range isolations is he going to ask for yeah. um, you know is he going to be able to provide at least you know below average defense, as opposed to just bad defense. Uh, th- those are some, some, some pretty big things. Are there any other sort of X factors that, that uh, you, you were thinking about?
1: Yeah, I, I think for me, the biggest X factor in the series in kind of a, a weird way. And, and I felt this way when he was on his other teams, but I just think Rob Covington's ability to knock down catch and shoot threes is always kind of a swing factor in any series he's involved with, because we know he's going to provide impact on the defensive end. But series where he shoots well on catch and shoot threes, his teams are night and day better. And I think that that's really, when Portland made that trade this past offseason, they were paying for a guy that was going to be a versatile defender, that was going to be an awesome four next to Nurkic, provide you know more defensive resistance on their front line, but also not be a zero on offense, be a real spacing threat, a guy that can hit corner threes, a guy that can hit above the break wing threes. And so how well Rob Covington shoots in this series, I think will have a pretty substantial impact uh, on who wins this series. Um, I I just think that he's going to get a lot of looks. I think Denver, as you said, in the 2019 series, they're going to try and take Dame out of the game. And I think that that means there's going to be a lot of opportunities for non-Dame players. And that almost always filters down to the role players that are shooting from the corner and the wing in a five-out or a four-out one-in. Uh, offense. So for me personally, I think the the X factor in the entire series is going to be Rob Covington.
0: Yeah. Which in that 2019 series, those players that got those shots, Aminu and Harkless, and they just, you know, we're not, we're not hitting. Yeah. Um, But uh, yeah, that's, that's a great point. And, and I think Covington, you know, I, I mentioned the, the centers for Portland, that this was a decent matchup for them. I also think it's a it's a pretty good matchup for for Rob Covington on the defensive end because again his his help strengths that's Denver loves to have those backdoor cuts those those lobs at the rim and they like to get a lot of those easy looks just off of Jokic as a passer and Covington leaving a guy at the right time making a, a an occasional block getting an occasional steal I think he's going to have plenty of opportunities to to have a big impact so yeah I think that's a great option. So let's get to, uh, this is my favorite question in these sort of uh, series breakdowns and that's the, um, down O two in the series adjustment for each team. And so, you know, you as, uh, you as Portland, if, if, uh, if the Blazers lose the first two in Denver as Terry Stotts, what are some sort of, maybe some, some out of the box adjustments that you will make to sort of uh, change the momentum of the series?
1: Yeah. So the, so the first kind of interesting part of this question is figuring out, okay, if they're if, if Portland is down O2, where has it gone wrong? And, and for right. me, I think that that means that the front court of Denver has kind of used their versatility and, and something we probably should have mentioned earlier, but a big difference in Joe game from the first time that they, they had a series is the shape he's in. Um, he's a lot yes. leaner, but he's also in just awesome shape. He's, he has great conditioning. He's, Faster, so they run a lot of wedges for him. He's awesome on the baseline, um, and so I think that if I'm looking at where this series is going wrong, um, it's the way that the front court matchup is going, and the guards are hitting for Denver. Um, so I think that a lot of what um, would be kind of interesting is is twofold, right? It's really hard to play zone. I know that's a wrinkle that you're going to see in the East a lot, um, given some of the teams that are really good that don't necessarily have awesome shooters as their best player. Jokic being an absolute killer in the mid post kind of kills that option. For yeah. Portland. Um, but I do think that there is some creative ways where when Denver is playing non-elite shooting lineups, um, they can do more in terms of doubling Jokic before the catch. And I think that that's the type of wrinkle that doesn't necessarily work all the time in the NBA, but if you're down 0-2, you have to figure out a way that doesn't just force the ball out of his hands and prevents him from ever getting the ball and hoping someone else is beating you. So given the propensity where this team honestly might have two of the best players in the league for a zone breaker with him, and Michael Porter jr. Um, I just don't think you're going to have that option available to you no matter the length. Um, but I do think that there's going to be some interesting things. The other wrinkle there, and it's, it's much more of like a, you know, Andre Iguodala golden state, Dilemma and Draymond when he was shooting well in Golden State. Dilemma is how do you play Aaron Gordon? Right? Like, this is a guy who has shown the ability to shoot. He's not a bad shooter. He can hit open three point shots, um but he's also not a great shooter by any stretch of the imagination. um And if he's being used kind of as a floor spacer, there's no guy without Jamal Murray on Denver that's an elite come off the pick, rise up immediately, and knock down a three. So it's not like you have to fear designated handoffs the way that golden state uses draymond when nobody covers him or it used iguodala when nobody covered him or or things of that nature so i do think an adjustment in this series could be how does portland defend aaron gordon i think they're going to start the series by kind of dropping off him when he's at the three-point line a little bit um would they be willing to commit to fully dropping off him and kind of roaming and making sure they put us like using covington as kind of like an extra helper and being like hey this is a guy who was a thirty-three percent, you know, thirty-four percent three-point shooter this year. If he wants to knock down open threes, that's the offense we're going to live with above Jokic picking us apart. Um, that's the type of desperation adjustment, you know, that I would probably be starting to look into if the series is two up.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a really good point, and yeah, the 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 thing that reminds me of is the 2016 finals with the Cavs leaving Harrison Barnes yes. in those last three or four games where they decided, you know, we can't take away everything. Um, so we're, even though Barnes shot, you know, in a really good percentage, we're just going to take our chances with that. As, and, you know, maybe get in his head a little bit by just yeah, they're not guarding you at all. Absolutely a mental aspect to it too.
1: And I, I think Barnes was the perfect guy. It's not even that Barnes wasn't a good shooter, but it was clearly taking a mental toll on him that he kept missing and that these were great looks. Um now whether Gordon's that kind of guy, you know, we haven't seen it. He hasn't played deep in the playoff or even really like I should say high stakes, you know, basketball yet, given the fact that Orlando was kind of just a walkover for Milwaukee and Toronto. Um, but this is a guy where that's something interesting. And you know, it could go the other way. He could he could hit five of six or six of seven, and you know, that adjustment could be terrible, but you got to be willing to try things that are a little bit more extreme when you're down two Oh, and you know, that's one way to do it.
0: Yeah. And I agree with your point about the, the Denver ball handlers and and being comfortable with them firing off the dribble. The only, the only instance where I I might not be quite as excited about would be Monte Morris from that sort of long mid range. He shot 51% from the long mid range last year. He's at 41% this year. Um, but he's always, to me, been a guy that if you're just giving him a, a an off the dribble 18 footer wide open, he's going to be pretty consistent about knocking that down. Um, but, but yes, your, your, your overall point, I, I agree with as far as, as far as my potential, uh, you know, if, uh, if Denver gets down O two and loses the first two at home, it would be obviously disaster <laughs> mode, but, uh. Um, some of the adjustments I would make is I would consider, and we saw this when they went um, they went down against Utah last year where, uh, you know, putting Mo- uh, Monte Morris into the starting lineup, maybe playing him instead of Compazzo. I would imagine if the Nuggets are down 0-2, it's because the offense has struggled a little bit. So, you know, inserting Morris, I think, would be an interesting idea. And then also you kind of brought this up earlier, but the idea of, staggering Porter Jr. and Jokic's minutes, depending on, you know, what is working. If the Jokic-Porter together minutes are just absolutely destroying the Blazers, then maybe you stick to that a little bit more um, and just try to defend when they're both off the court. But, you know, say the, that uh, those minutes where they're together, they're kind of playing even, then, yeah, maybe you have to stagger and, and um, get MPJ on those bench lineups to give them an offensive punch. Uh, and then and then the final thing would be, you know, we we talked about Denver's sort of strategy in terms of the the pick and roll against Dame. I, I always think like uh, it, and it seemed like that was the case with with the Utah series last year, where when when they were struggling defensively, Malone's adjustments and the Nuggets team adjustments essentially were to be more and more aggressive on the pick and roll to to get up higher, to blitz more. And I would assume that would be what they would go to if their defense is, is really struggling against that uh, Blazers backcourt.
1: And there's there's a couple wrinkles that I, I could see Denver employing. I'd be curious if, if Portland's offense just gets going in a ridiculous way and Dame's you know blowing past Jokic and pick and rolls. And, and honestly, Jokic has been a lot better on that end this year, so I'm not necessarily anticipating that, it's just if that's the case. Um, I'd be curious to see if they would put Jokic – on someone other than Nurkic, who's not necessarily as capable a short roller, like a Covington, where they could get him to the level knowing that instead of rolling, Covington's going to pop. And kind of like we just discussed with Aaron Gordon, you just live with Covington hitting threes or shooting threes as opposed to Nurkic short rolling and then kicking for an open three. So um, you know, kind of creating more scramble passing opportunities and scramble defense opportunities. Um, that could be something I could see if it gets to two oh and that's the reason it's two oh type thing.
0: Yeah, I like that idea. I don't know if that's something I envision Mike Malone doing, though. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I have 100% agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, yeah. Uh, is there is there anything else about this series that you want to discuss before we get into the prediction? I'm just super
1: excited to watch Nikola Jokic and Dame Lillard go at it again in a playoff series. These guys, just every time they play each other, put on awesome games, and they're honestly two of, like, you know, three, four most likable guys in the league to watch. They're both awesome teammates, awesome leaders, yep. um, you know, humble. And so I'm, I'm just super excited to watch them play. Absolutely. So, uh, do you want to go first? or You want me to go first with the prediction? I can go first for this one. Yes, um, sure. as much as I uh, want to be optimistic about the the time I put into the Portland side, I am going to lean your guys and take uh, Denver in seven. Um, I love. I really do like love the Portland team, and it's one of my favorite organizations. I like that they stay competitive. It's just hard for me to pick against Jokic this year, and I really think that this Michael Porter Jr. leap, uh, especially the passing, the reads, and the defense, which is something we didn't even really get to, that he's been a lot better on uh, this year. I think their front court is just going to overwhelm Portland. I don't think they're going to have the depth in the front court to handle those three guys. Um, and honestly, I like their supplemental guards that aren't Jamal Murray enough. Uh, where it doesn't scare me off them winning the series. So uh, I'm going to go with the Vegas dogs, but the seeding favorites uh, and take your guys in seven.
0: So I was, I was right with you. If like, if it was literally the nuggets, completely healthy minus Murray, I would have, I would have gone nuggets in seven. Um, but again, given the Dozier injury, the, the issue with Barton and, and the, you know, the question mark over his availability, I'm going to go the Blazers in six. I think the what we've seen with their defensive improvement with Nurkic and Powell in those lineups, I think, is is just enough to, to get enough stops and, and combine that with the fact that the Blazers have been one of the best offenses in the NBA. The Nuggets, you know, especially in that starting lineup, you know, they've got a small point guard. They've got a, a, a center that's got limited mobility. I, I think there's plenty of things that the Blazers can do to take advantage of the, the Nuggets defense. So I'll go Blazers in six, but yeah, this was one of the the tougher decisions for me. I was, I was teetering back and forth between Denver and seven or Portland at six. I I
1: think this series is as toss up as you're going to get. And I think we were both just leaning, like, it's kind of when does the game get stolen? I wouldn't be surprised if it you know went the Portland and six route, if they just get on them early and, you know, win two in Portland after stealing one in Denver type things. So, um, I'm, I can't wait for that series and, you know,
0: I'm ready. Let's get to the next one. Yeah. So uh, let's uh, let's talk about the uh, the four or five matchup between the we'll save your, your the one you were most excited for for last. And uh, uh, let's talk about the four seed Los Angeles Clippers taking on the five seed Dallas Mavericks. I'm going to act as Rick Carlisle and the Mavs. Brett will act as Ty Liu and the Clippers. Los Angeles finishing with a 47 and 25 record, fourth in offensive rating. And uh, they moved up towards the end of the season and got into ninth in defensive rating by the end of the year, second overall in net rating at positive 6.8. The Mavericks finishing at 42 and 30, eighth in offense, 22nd in defense, and 10th in net rating at positive 2.3. And as far as the regular season matchups, The Clippers won one of the three, and we were talking before we were recording, Brett, you mentioned the absolute demolition in uh, one of the first games of the season where Dallas beat the Clippers 124-73 to on December 27th, and I'm pretty sure they were up like 70, 20 minutes into the game, (laughs) Uh, and then... The, uh, they, the the teams played a back-to-back in mid-March with the Clippers winning the first one 109-99 and then Dallas taking the second one 105-89. to So, Brett, I guess first off, you know, the, the thing that's kind of exciting about not only the last series we talked about where it's a rematch of a series from a couple of years ago, this series is a rematch of the first round series that we got last year and featured that absolute classic game four with Luca hitting that step back three at the buzzer.
1: So the, this series is awesome just because it kind of, in a way that it's polar opposite from the one we just discussed with Portland and, and Denver is this is the series where we get to see the best players guarding each other a lot. Um, and we're going to see Kawhi guarding Luca a lot. And it's hard to ask for really any more fun matchup right now in the league than that matchup. Um, and when it's not Kawhi, it's going to be a lot of Paul George and, you know, that's another one. That's just a really awesome, um, you know, super elite defensive wing guarding, you know, maybe the most talented young offensive creator we've ever had in the league. Um, a guy who obliterated them early this season, I think for 42 in the second game or the third game, um, that they played just an absolutely awesome creator. Who's a killer has a sense of the moment, um, and so I just can't wait to watch kind of the individual matchup, um, in this series and I'm ready to get started into the format of it.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, uh, that, that first matchup, that blowout for Dallas, I think the the takeaway for me for that is the Clippers are not that great without Kawhi, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, um, that's, that's the other thing that's, that's a bit frustrating about, trying to, to break this down based on the regular season matchups is we didn't get any with uh, the Clippers having Rajon Rondo. So that's, that's a big part of the, the issue here. And I guess we, we should also mention that there is a, a slight issue in terms of Maxi Kleba's availability. He's got a sore right Achilles, if I'm not mistaken. And he, he is, uh, you know, day to day and questionable for that game one so he is the guy as far as you know if if we're breaking down sort of the x's and o's and what are going to be some of the important matchups he's the guy for dallas that you're you're hoping is going to be guarding your uh, kawaii i guess especially Kawhi because he's got the strength you need a guy that isn't just going to get bowled over by the claw and kleber is really the only guy on dallas that not only has that strength but the mobility to do a decent job
1: yeah and, and i i posted something earlier today on Twitter about this. And and it's the matchup that, you know, Luca and Kawhi and Luca Paul George is going to draw all of the attention and, and be kind of the marquee of it. But something I was really looking forward to kind of watching in this series. and, And it's a big question for Dallas is Kleber because what you see a lot when these teams play is Kleber is the guy that gets switched out on Kawhi and George a lot. And really even more kind of granular, it's the Paul George matchup because they align a lot in terms of the minutes they're playing when Paul George and Kawhi were being staggered, they were aligned a lot. And so Kleber made Paul George work for his baskets. Now, Paul George is awesome and, you know, was getting good looks anyway and was getting pull up mid Rangers and could get to the basket. But Kleber's one of the rare big guys that, as you said, he's physical. He's strong in his upper chest. He moves really well um, with guys that have like super functional handles. So you're not terrified if he's on an Island out there. And then he's a good offensive player. So in most series, he'd be a really, really, really critical X factor for Dallas. Um, I'm always just really worried about Achilles injuries with basketball players. Um, Even if, you know, he says he's 100% healthy. um, You're talking about guys who, you know, have to laterally move to stay in front of Kawhi and Paul George. And it's so much different when you just don't have that same level of trust, you know, backpedaling and getting over screens and getting under and leaping out on. So that's something that's concerning to me. Um, but one thing that's interesting wrinkle from last year's is the difference in Dallas's team from the Seth Curry kind of trade and the Josh Richardson trade. So in theory, right, and I was a big fan of the Seth Curry trade for uh, Philadelphia this year. I, I was a big Seth guy. And and I liked Josh Richardson when he was in um, Miami, but it just, he had kind of just ha- hasn't been as good for a while now. Um, I think that what's interesting is this is the type of series where you're going to see Hopefully, if you're Dallas, the fruit of that trade, like you really need the lockdown defender version of Josh Richardson, kind of the way you talked about, you know, in the best case scenario, you're getting Norman Powell to be a small kind of, you know, guy that can get under MPJ skin like that's supposed to be Josh Richardson in this series against Paul George and Kawhi, you know, being a guy who's super long, physical at the point of attack. He just hasn't been that same level. Of defender in a while. Now he might have that and he might be able to kind of, you know, spring that for this series. And he might get back to that level, you know, in a short sample size, but Dallas needs that. Um, because the Clippers have been scorching hot offensively this season. Um, their three point shooting is ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous across Um, the board. Yeah. And as you, and in every role basically. And, and as you mentioned, um, you know, I, I love watching lou Williams play but i do think that just there's something about the rondo ad in terms of the mentality this team needed that he brings them um not to get to you know bl- basketball cliche or get into whole like you know who's an alpha this that and the other but i do think that there's real value in a guy who has championship experience who has played in tons of huge games been a valuable player in impactful ways in those games in a way that just Lou Williams never has really been deeper and deeper as we got into the playoffs. And so um, even if Rondo is not necessarily an X factor in this series, I just think he brings a level of calm to that team that they're going to really need in the playoff run. Um, and we might see some of that fruit in this series.
0: Yeah. To to go back to your point about the, the Curry Richardson trade, I, I think it's fascinating because obviously yeah, Dallas's mindset making that deal is okay. We're maybe sacrificing a little offensively, but we were the greatest offense in NBA history last year. So we can get a little worse there if, if Richardson helps us get better defensively. And it, it really, frankly has not worked out at least in the regular season. But as you said, you know, it it'll be all worth it if Richardson is able to lock down Paul George in this series and Dallas gets to round two and yeah, he makes a big impact. Um, Seth Curry was excellent. I thought in that, Absolutely. especially on the offensive end in that series last year, they also got great production from, Trey Burke, which might have been more a, uh, you know, something to do with the fact that they were in a bubble and Trey Burke didn't have the opportunity to go out to, to clubs and, and things at night. <laughs> but uh, speaking to the, the Rondo effect, yeah, I think the, what the Clippers, I, besides just adding an injection of passing, which, of course, this team needed, I think the other important element of what Rondo brings is, you know, you know obviously everyone knows he's got a great basketball IQ. And with that, he can make just not only important plays, but timely plays. You know, your team's on, you know, the other team is on a little run and Rondo might be able to get a steal and set up a fast break and stem the tide a little bit. I think that's something that if the Rondo acquisition is going to pay off, it's going to be those little things where he he avoids the Clippers, you know, just getting destroyed in the second half by the Nuggets because he makes – A play here or there that just you know gets the team back on the right track
1: and Uh, and i think that one of the the kind of interesting things that you see about the dialogue around the clippers and and it's really kind of hovered around paul george this season is this whole oh the same old clippers you know last year was obviously a super embarrassing you know exit to their season and and a terrible end to their season for them um but this is a far, far different team from the one they brought into the playoffs last year. And for my money, it's a far better team, especially, you know, one of the big concerns a week ago or two weeks ago would have been, is a going to be good to go uh, for the playoffs? And this is one of those things where, you know, getting him back those last, you know, game or two, um, seeing him be effective, uh, at least for me has kind of quelled some of those fears as to how he's going to be. And, and I just think that those additions they made, that's, what's going to be really critical. I mean, we just talked about it with Josh Richardson kind of on the Clippers end of the spectrum here, right? Like this is why you paid Luke Kennard this summer, right? Like secondary creation off the bench. You want to talk about a guy that hasn't worked super well since they made that signing. He'd be a good example of that on the other end of the spectrum hasn't worked super well in LA, but I do think that in playoff series against bench lineups his shooting his floor spacing the way he can kind of create for others. And even if that's kind of his only role could definitely play an impact in this series. And then really kind of the biggest thing for the Clippers is they've gotten some unexpected internal development with Terrence Mann. and Terrence Mann gave them kind of a real boost this season. Uh, He was a really good passer, interesting rebounder as like a tweener. Um, He sets good screens. He's smart. He finds good pockets of space. And I'm curious when Dallas goes to their, bench lineup because they have a bunch of guys that are kind of where Terrence Mann is probably going to be in six years type guys um yeah it's going to be an interesting thing when you see him lining up you know when he's in bench lineups that feature just one of Kawhi and and George and, and I think it's going to be interesting to see how okay this is a different Clippers team you know Lou and Doc run different stuff even though it's similar um but just has the mentality of this team changed given you know, Harold out, Lou Williams out now, Rondo in, Ibaka in, Batum in, Kennard in. There's just a different makeup to this Clippers team. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of, and it always sounds like excuse-making with the Clippers and, and with Paul George, but I do think that there was a real element of the fact that George wasn't the same player after his injury last season. And we almost got that this year with his foot, but it seems like that has kind of quelled um, and he's been a lot better since, since he got over that. So I'm hoping that we get a healthy version of Kawhi, a healthy version of George, a healthy-ish version of Ibaka and, and Beverly and that sort of thing. And, and that's what we see for the full, you know, however many games this series goes.
0: Yeah, the, uh, I, I, I tend to agree with you about the Clippers being a little bit better, mostly on sort of the fringes of their rotation with, with a Batum, with, with Rondo, with obviously Ibaka, I think is better than Harrell especially on the defensive end of the floor. yeah, And uh, yeah, even, even Beverly who came into that first round series and was, was put on a a really low minutes limit as well. I think he'll um, be able to play more if they, if they need him in, in this series. So speaking from, from Dallas's perspective, the the, the things that, that, that uh, I'm afraid about as far as facing the Clippers, obviously the three point shooting, but you know, one of the other big differences between the Clippers this year and last, of course, is the head coach and Ty Lue is there now. And I think one of the differences as as with Lou as a playoff coach compared to Rivers is he's willing to go you know, outside of the box, be a little bit more of an experimenter. And he'll just say, heck, if, if I feel like a, a team without any traditional center is going to just be able to beat you, I'll go to it. And that's where the depth and and some of those guys we've already talked about and making contributions is so big because the Clippers can go for extended periods of time and just play small and, and outscore you.
1: Yep. And I think that one of those things that's really interesting about how, you know, Lou, and there was a joke about how, you know, they were going to be running similar offensive sets for Paul George and, and Doc had made that comment. But I do think that, um, Lou, in terms of just the way that he empowers his best players, it's clear that he he's shown that he has the ability to do that, and his players feel comfortable in his offense and and like the way he runs the sets. And I just think that you know now that you've added kind of a true true coach on the floor floor general and Rondo, that's going to play playoff minutes. Um, I think you're going to see just a, a different level of team IQ. And, and you hit on the nail on the head. I, the biggest difference this year. Or none is that one of the best lineups the Clippers had in the regular season last year was how effective that, you know, Lou Williams mantra as Harold pick and roll was, and that they could go to it. And in the playoffs, the guy is just targeted every time down the court when he's out there. And um, if you have a guy, that's a major piece of your core that is so clearly uh, like a, just kind of where the other team is circulating their offense from, and you you're reliant on him. You're in trouble. Um, and this year, I just think the Clippers big man rotation, you know, Zubach and Ibaka, they, they're just much more versatile. They can both get to the level of the screens. They can both drop and contest. They're both capable, you know, Ibaka more so in a, you know, fringe late clock switch scenario. Um, you know, you're not like absolutely petrified of him being on an Island with a non Curry Harden level guard. Um, so I do think that in a series where, you know, you have Dallas, where that guy is Luca and nobody else, and that guard's going to be Richardson or Tim Hardaway Jr. or Brunson, guys that aren't going to just absolutely explode past you. Um, I think that the Clippers front court is is going to be pretty comfortable in this series, and it's going to be a big impact.
0: Yeah, so let's get into uh, let's get into some of the the pick and roll coverage that we sort of expect to see. Uh, as far as the the Mavs, I think uh, with with guys like Kawhi and PG, you've, you've you've got to go over the screen. They they've shown that they're excellent three point shooters. If you give them that space. And, you know, I I would say still like with, especially as the Mavs with Porzingis playing heavy minutes, you've got to drop him back. He's not mobile enough to do really anything else. Uh, So the, the other advantage though, with, uh, with what Dallas has, especially if, if Kleba is healthy and playing, and you know you're playing the likes of of Doncic and Hardaway Jr. and Dorian Finney-Smith, a lot of like-sized guys. You can switch just basically at, across one through four a lot of the time, unless you know you're bringing in Jalen Brunson, who is really small. Uh, so so that would be sort of what I'm what I'm doing with uh, with Dallas's pick and roll coverage. How about on your end?
1: And I think that kind of you know what's we we've mentioned this now a few times but it's so different from that denver portland series is i think this is the series where switch defense is going to be pretty employed on both sides um yeah. just because the clippers have guards they're going to be comfortable switching with length they're going to be comfortable passing Kawhi and george's guys to each other um they're going to be comfortable with abaka you know batum man they play a lot of guys that are you know long and rangy wings and and have big wingspans. And, and so I think you're going to see that on the Clippers side as well. Um, to your you know point on Dallas, I think that, you know, the dropping Porzingis aspect um, would work a lot better if the Clippers were still playing, Har- still had Harrell. And that was kind of what they were leaning on. Um, this is where that Abaka wrinkle is really, really catered for a matchup like this against a big, where I agree, Porzingis, you know, at this point just hasn't demonstrated the defensive mobility he had in New York. Um, and you're going to need, if he's at the level, um, for like a Kawhi or George, you're going to be in trouble. So you're going to have to drop him back and it's going to come down to, you know, can a guy like Ibaka knock down, you know,
0: above the break threes. Uh, well, I, I have a, I have a question for you based on that then. So if you're, um, I mean, you are Lu in this discussion. <laughs> so, um, he's been starting Zubach as of late because of Ibaka's injury or whatever, do you consider then just putting Ibaka back in that starting lineup to match with Porzingis's minutes?
1: Yeah. So I I think that that's a, I think that's a worthwhile consideration, but I think that given the way the team has played, I would probably leave the starters alone. I think that when we get into the, are you down? Oh, two stuff, that could be the, you know, not to spoil that, but that, that's a pretty good idea for where that adjustment could come from. Um, And wouldn't be surprised since, you know, it's a, it's a pretty easy one kind of on deck, but I do think that you know that's probably not the main concern of Tyloo going into the series because even as you said, if you know guards are trailing and locking Kawhi and George over screens, those guys are just still so capable in the mid range. Kawhi is so strong going through big guys, um, and George is so just kind of savvy at sneaking around bigs. I think that they're not going to be as worried. And honestly, Zubac has just been effective as a roller, um, even if the roll happens like a little bit deeper into the lane. He's just been really effective next to those guys, and so. I don't think you'd see that as a, you know, pre-game one adjustment. You could, um, but if I'm op- operating as Ty Lu, I'd probably leave the starting lineup alone for now. But it's just one of those things where, you know, and you had mentioned this, I I, I do think that guys like Jalen Brunson, um, you know, it's a challenge, right? Because he's actually a pretty physical post defender. He stays in good position. He's savvy. He's strong. Um, yeah, he's yeah, strong. He's a, it's a strong base player, but it's, it's just a tough switch there when Kawhi and George are probably two of the, you know, eight, nine wings in the league that both have, like, these really, like, interesting and good post games. They can both kind of get to these, like, shimmy follow ups Kawhi is maybe the best player in the league, you know, as a wing at this point from that spot. Um, and so it's just, it's tough to see, you know, if Dallas switches a lot with their smaller guards that aren't Richardson. Um, and even with Richardson, kind of how are they going to hold up against these big physical wings from L.A.? Um, whereas I just think that L.A. is going to be very comfortable passing their guys. And when Luka's not in the game, I think you could see kind of a mix of coverages where it switches or, you know, it's a drop coverage um, against, you know, not Porzingis bigs, um, you know, if they have more traditional rules, if you see guys like that, if you see wing-to-wing stuff, um, you know, not all of the wings in Dallas's rotation are outstanding shooters by any stretch, so um, I wouldn't be surprised also if you saw a lot of paint packing from uh, the Clippers in this series when they played their kind of less spacey lineups with Luka off the court.
0: Yeah, so on the other end of the floor with with Luka operating the offense for the Mavs, and of course they're going to run a lot of pick and pop with him and Porzingis, um, we, we again with last year's series we saw a lot of switching where the, the Clippers were willing to put any one of George or Leonard or Morris on, onto to Luca. But at times it, it felt like Luca was able to, uh, you know, sort of mismatch hunt. He, he got, he took advantage of Morris. I thought on, on uh, numerous occasions in that series, also guys like Patrick, uh, or excuse me, uh, Reggie Jackson, who he hit that step back three on at the end of game four. So, obviously switching seems to be the best option because Luca is so good at picking apart a, you know, traditional defensive scheme, but also, you know, Luca is Luca for a reason.
1: And there's, there's such a tough, in the same way we did with Jokic there's such a tough ask when you're covering him because he's just such a genius passer and the way he processes defensive reads and and where everyone's rotating to at, at the speed he does Um, and then is able to deliver balls on the money just makes him so difficult because there's a game from earlier this season where they're playing the Pacers. um, And it's a game that's kind of stuck in my head with Luca where the Pacers like employed a pretty aggressive kind of, you know, blitz strategy early in the first quarter. And Luca is like backpedaling and whipping passes to Porzingis and no lookers. And it's just one of those things where he's such a tough player to employ certain coverages against that. Even if you're getting a switch where like it's a Morris or, you know, a guy like a Jackson in that case where, you know, you're giving up an advantage, but you still have guys like loaded and can help as opposed to just letting him like pick you apart for a wide open three point shooter. Sometimes that's almost just like the lesser of two evils with him. Um, And I feel like if you're the Clippers, at least in the early going, that's probably the one you're going to choose. And that's probably the one I personally would choose as well. You know, Luca's going to get his, but I feel like if you can kind of limit Luca's, you know, ability to impact the game with his creation, and you cannot let his kind of inferior supporting cast to the Clippers uh, rise up and play above their pay grade, I think the Clippers are going to be in pretty good shape on that
0: end. Yeah, if Luca's, you know, putting up and uh, stat lines of like 42 points and four assists, I think yeah. you're you're pretty content with that. You don't want him doing. 32 points and 14 assists, you know, (laughs) Um, but, you know, speaking to like in comparison to Luca and like Dame Lillard, who we talked about, you know, Denver might blitz. I I think that just the huge difference is Luca's six, eight, and LeBron is six, eight. So those guys are just so much more difficult to blitz because they can still survey the entire floor when you're doing that. And they've got the strength to be able to, as you said, sort of just whip a pass across the court and, and get it there on the money. So yeah. Um, I, I tend to agree that, yeah, just making Luca score as a lot of teams did with Steve Nash back in the day, the Spurs, yeah. I think employed that strategy where, you know, if Steve Nash is just going to beat us with his scoring, so be it. But, um, yeah, just take away everybody else.
1: And granted like this is, this is a guy who like, you know, this isn't, and even in the Steve Nash area, right. I mean, he was an awesome, awesome scorer, but he wasn't scoring a lot. Luka's a guy that, you know, he's 28, 29 a game anyway. Um, you know, if he upticks that at, at to thirty four, you know, thirty five in a playoff series, that would be you know high. But I, I feel like if you're limiting the creation, that's something that you're going to live with way more often. Just because you know the guys you don't want to let get going are you know Tim Hardaway Jr. and and the supporting cast, because Luca's getting his, like he's he's going to get his however many points he needs to get to. He's going to get to the foul line a lot. Um, he's going to abuse, you know, mismatches. He's going to post up smaller guards. So, um, being able to kind of limit the damage from the other guys is going to be kind of the big thing for the Clippers. And it's also why I think the Clippers, you know, would never, you know, don't want to criticize a team for how they played the end of the regular season. But I definitely, uh, from a personal perspective, I think that the narrative that they were trying to duck the Lakers kind of overtook to me, what was them clearly targeting the Dallas matchup. Um, I just think that they feel they probably felt a lot more comfortable with the Dallas matchup and didn't really care about the, the difference of when they were going to probably have to see the Lakers. Um, yeah. I think that, you know, that it makes for better TV that way. Um, but when I just evaluated it at face value, it's like, well, if I'm the Clippers, would I rather play Portland with Dame and CJ and Powell and a really good big man or play Luca and, not as good a supporting cast and I would probably lean Dallas. And that's, that's kind of how I saw that.
0: Yeah. um, The, the Dallas supporting cast is going to be obviously crucial. And we saw last year that even though, yeah, the Clippers did a lot of switching that, a lot of the supporting players for Dallas got open looks. You know, you saw the likes of Seth Curry and Trey Burke; those guys get a bunch of opportunities. And even Maxi Kleba, I think that was a key part of that series not going Dallas's way. As Kleba, I think went like one for fifty-seven in that series. Yep. Um, and, and he's and Kleba's been. A great with his three-point shooting this season so that could be a big difference whereas you know last year I think the Clippers were fine leaving him open I don't think that's a good strategy this time
1: I also think it's interesting because I mean we talk about you know we're playing it from the coach's perspective but um, I, I do personally think that Dallas probably has a coaching advantage I, I prefer Carlisle um, as a coach over Lou in this series so I, I do think that it's interesting in terms of, you know, if push comes to shove and we're in a, a crisis situation again as the Clippers, um, how much do I trust Lou to adjust relative to uh, Carlisle to adjust? Now, obviously the counter to that would be, well, you know, they had the three, one comeback in Cleveland, like lose no, you know, he's no unfamiliar person, a scrutiny and tough situations. And I get all that. I'm just talking strictly from an X's no standpoint. I think that Carlisle in, in the way you discussed with, uh, you know, Lou, he's another coach that's like really willing to go outside the box on adjustments. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if he had some creative kind of defensive coverages and and set plays for, you know, out of timeout stops that we haven't seen before that free them for good baskets and, and free them for good looks and, and, and that sort of thing. So I, th- I think that's important in, in evaluating this series in terms of how
0: long you think the series is going to go. The one thing I, I, this is one thing where I'm like, I need to see this at least once happened once in this series. I'm hoping that there's at one point Ty Lue goes small and Rick Carlisle puts in Boban Marjanovic. I need to see that at least one time of this series, just for the the humor value.
1: Goes to the Terrence Mann at center lineup. Oh, <laughs> <weird>. <laughs>
0: But uh, no, I, I tend to agree with you that Carlisle has the advantage mainly just because he has a longer track record. I think Lou's playoff track record is very strong. It's just you know short. He's just had a couple of seasons in Cleveland, um, and and obviously I think Carlisle has been the better regular season coach of the two as well. But yeah, I think they're they're I think they're two of the top ten coaches in the league, and I would put Carlisle maybe even in the top five. I would agree. Um, but but yeah, the coaching thing is is interesting uh i would probably give the edge to the clippers as far as bench uh, the bench is concerned um you know we we already talked about a lot of the guys that have made an impact this year for for la they're too deep at just about every position uh so so i would give them the edge there who are some who are some uh, x factors that that you think might uh, make a you know might be able to swing a game or two in this series
1: so interestingly enough right we talk about how there's X factors on each team, but I, I personally actually think there's just for me, one very specific X factor um, in the series that affects both teams. And we kind of hit on it a little bit earlier, but for me, it's Josh Richardson. Um, and it's just because they need like the best version of Josh Richardson for this to be a long series, in my opinion, because I think they need him to limit one of Kawhi or Paul George for a pretty extended period of time. They need him to be a nat. They need him to bother you know, a really, really elite creator, Um, they didn't have a guy like this last year. And they went and got Richardson um, pretty much for a series just like this. And so um, in the same way we talked about, you know, the Rob Covington impact, you know, there's, to, to use the Bob Myers quote, right? Like there are 82 game players and there are 16 game players. Mavs are really hoping Josh Richardson is a 16 game player because the 82 game one wasn't a success for him. But I do think that, if he plays really well in this series. And by the way, that's not just as a, as a defensive guy, I mean, his offensive game has clearly dipped since, you know, where we thought he could probably get to from a projection standpoint, but he's not an incapable offensive player by any stretch. You know, he's got some shake. He's a good athlete. He can hit shots from the outside. You're just not uber confident in him knocking down outside shots the way, you know, we might've been a few years ago. Um, But I do think that in terms of, you know, How long I think this series can go comes down to how well did Josh Richardson do on defense? And was he also kind of a plus, plus, plus uh, offensive player in the series as well?
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, I I picked Maxi Kleba as my X Factor for Dallas. So we basically went with the two guys that are going to be defending the two stars for the Clippers. And yeah, not only can they defend them reasonably well, but does that energy that they're expending to defend end up costing them on the other end, not being able to hit shots? Uh, yeah, that, those two guys are, are super important. And, yeah, a, a guy for the Clippers that I felt like I had to bet you is Terrence Mann. I think he's, he's a guy that can unlock a lot of those small ball units. And also one of the things that the Clippers have struggled with throughout these last couple of years in the, in the Kawhi Paul George era is getting to the rim. And Terrence Mann is a guy that he's improved his, uh, his corner three-point shooting this year, but he's always been a guy that's pretty good as a slasher a uh, guy that's not afraid to put his head down and get to the bucket. And yeah, he gives them a little bit uh, of a different dynamic as well as being a pesky defender.
1: Now, now, here's kind of an interesting thing, and we haven't paid much you know, thought to him just because he has not played well since he got there. But Dallas was also a team that made a, a relatively decent splash trade at the deadline and acquired J.J. Redick, and he has not been good. Since they acquired him, I don't want people to think that we weren't kind of on the fact that Dallas has some shooting. It's just the reality is since they acquired him, um, he's not playing a ton. He's only played 11 minutes per game. But it's worth noting, this is a guy that's played in a lot of playoff series. He is an all-time great shooter. Um, even in his kind of limited minutes with Dallas, he's still shooting it at a really high clip. Um, does Carlisle kick the tires on Redick playing more minutes in the playoffs? that could be something that's interesting. That could be, you know, an, an adjustment if we, if we see it. Um, obviously the jury's still out since he hasn't played a lot since he's gotten there. He's missed a lot of games. He's only playing, I think 11. Yeah. He's played about 11 minutes per game um, in the 13 games that he's played for them. But at the same time, you know, this is JJ Reddick. He's been involved in a lot of the best offensive lineups, you know, of our lifetime in the last 20 years or so. Um, and it's just one of those things where, you know, I wouldn't call him a series X factor, but, He's also like kind of lurking in the background of this series where, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Carlisle dusted off JJ Redick for a a run earlier than we thought. And he gave a good seven, eight, nine minute stretch in a game one or a game two, or or even later in the series. So something just as a food for thought, you know, this is the guy that was targeted pretty clearly by Dallas at the deadline. So again, they thought they were going to get, you know, a pretty impactful player there. And, It just hasn't worked out so far, but that's not to say that, you know, he couldn't have a game or two where he shoots the lights out and just is JJ
0: Redick. I'm going to be honest. I, I didn't even consider the name JJ Redick in my preparation for this series. I, I, for a brief moment, forgot that he was on Dallas. Um, but, uh, (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I think the the big issue there and especially when you're talking about that this team is going up against Ty Lu, and you saw it back with the in the uh, with with Lou with the Cavs is they're very much about targeting your weak link yeah. on defense and from what little I have seen of Reddick on the Dallas Mavericks his defense is definitely there to be exploited so uh yeah that it I mean, yes. If if Dallas is really struggling offensively, I, I could see it. But also with Luca, you know, I I fit. I feel like their offense is going to be at least has like a baseline level of competency.
1: Yeah, he'd he'd be an interesting wrinkle if their non-Luka lineups um, get stagnant offensively, and they're already struggling defensively. Is kind of the way I see that happening, right? Like if yeah. those guys aren't doing a good job stopping. Kawhi George or stopping the bench lineups and you're going to be bleeding points anyway, you might as well try and put a guy out there that can space the floor and maybe create some extra points from the line. But I agree. It's, it's one of those things where like, he's been such a prevalent player on good teams for a long time. It's weird that he's such an afterthought in an important series now, um, even as a deadline acquisition. Um, But yeah, something that was interesting that kind of crossed my mind, um, here's a, a, a good question for you, and I know that we're, we're close to kind of getting into the adjustments in our series pick, but do you know, if you had to guess, who is third on Dallas in EPM this year? Ooh. This was something that I, I was interested in when I was looking at the series from both aspects
0: third so i mean i would assume luca's one
1: (laughs) luca and uh yeah giving away that luca and porzingis are um one two
0: i'm gonna go i'm assuming it's an out-of-the-box sort of name so i'm gonna go with dorian finney smith It,
1: it is it's dorian finney smith who i would not have imagined in his 32 minutes per game um registered as kind of a pretty important player for them this season um but, yeah, he's he's a guy that, you know, played well this year. Is worth noting that, um, again, like we didn't mention him as an X factor, but kind of in referencing like guys where Terrence Mann could end up in their range in a few years, that's kind of what you're looking at. Um, he's yeah. a good, solid role player, been a good, solid role player before. Um, I'm not sure either of us trust him a ton shooting the ball in a playoff series, but we're going to find out. Um, but he's actually been a pretty – uh, impactful player for them this year.
0: Um, just looking kind of inner team. So some, something to consider there. This isn't a stat I've looked at for a while, but I remember at least at like the midway point of the year, I noticed that Finney Smith, a big progression for him was last year. He was mostly just a corner specialist. Whereas this year he got a lot better in terms of his percentage from above the break, which is a, which is a pretty important, uh, important improvement. Um, but uh, yeah, he he obviously is a you know a solid if not great defender and also an excellent offensive rebounder. Just makes some of those hustle plays that you you need from your non-stars.
1: And then in a in in kind of one more thing about this kind of interesting wrinkles to this series, and this is much more of an individual player prediction. But I'm curious what you think on it. Would you guess that Demarcus Cousins will play meaningful minutes in this series? I'm not talking like by number like will there be critical runs of game where DeMarcus Cousins is on the floor for the Clippers he's he's an interesting piece to think about as well
0: I would probably say no again largely because you know he's, he's clearly the third center in this uh on this Clippers roster behind Zubach and Ibaka and I would lean more towards especially in playoff basketball Lou wanting to go with the small ball lineups as opposed to trying to do the smash mouth basketball. Uh, that was the big difference between the, the 2015 Cavs and the 2016 Cavs is, you know, they were playing with, uh, Timothy Mozgov and Tristan Thompson together at times in 2015 and lose like, yeah, we're not going to do that. We're barely going to play Mozgov at all, to be honest. Um, so, so yeah, I would be surprised, but you know, I guess maybe if, uh, Maybe if Bobon is going crazy, they could, they could throw Cousins on as a, as a possible counter.
1: It's an interesting, it's an interesting guy to think about because he's only really played major minutes in games where they were sitting a lot of their guys, but this is also a guy that, you know, even if he's not close to the same player he was, um, you know, really great passer, even still um, a terrible defensive player at this point, but like just a total, but if the, if the Mavs are playing lineups that aren't. You know as plus, um, you know, again, we're talking about like fringe bench lineups without Luca, and, and I think Luca's minutes are going to be pretty high in this series. But in those kind of five, six minute runs, can you steal some time with Boogie as a small ball center? Um, where his matchup is a Porzingis or is a Kleber or even if it's a Boban type thing? Um, and can he be effective? So it's something I'll I'll at least kind of look at in the first two games if we get any minutes where he's out there.
0: All right, let's get into that uh, that 2 in the series adjustments, and I'll I'll uh, I'll I'll ask you first. And I know we kind of maybe, or I kind of spoiled one did, of the possibilities of, of starting Ibaka. But was there anything else you had in your yeah, So I,
1: I think I think the uh, the the two adjustments and, and kind of the way you had it with uh, Denver in the last series, and I had to be a little bit more like uh, schematic with it. I think the Clippers' adjustments are going to be a lot more substitution pattern um, yeah. with just. Uh, do they swap their starting lineup? And by the way, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you reinsert a into the starting lineup. It could be, uh, you know, do you juice up your guards? Uh, do you move Beverly? You know, do you move, where do you move Rondo around? Uh, are you getting a spring from Canard shooting? Something like that. If you were down 0-2, if the Clippers are down 0-2, they're going to have so many problems on their hands, um, just from a mentality perspective and just the juju of the organization stuff. Um but I
0: swapping do think out, um, that swapping out uh Batum and Morris, that could be you know that yeah,
1: adding kind of adding some more physicality and Morris, I mean Morris is one of the more uh interesting contracts in the NBA this year, just given the fact that it it sure felt like a lot of money. Um, but he shot forty seven percent from three. So it's <laughs> it's hard to argue with the versatility and you know, he's not a zero defensive player. I, I wouldn't necessarily call him a plus, but He's physical and he competes out there defensively. I mean, he's a little slow footed, Um, but I mean, they paid for that kind of, you know, three point shooting production. And again, if he starts game one and two by shooting well, and and, you know, a guy like Batum doesn't, I wouldn't be surprised if they upped his minutes or where they slotted those minutes. But I think for the Clippers, this, this adjustment, is going to be much more substitution pattern than schematic.
0: Yeah, people forget that Morris. I mean, they they forget because Luca hit the shot, but Marcus Morris hit the left corner three to put yes. the Clippers up right before that, and that would have been a huge shot for their momentum and and his confidence going for going deeper into the playoffs. If not for that Luca game winner, but um, yeah, those are all good points. Um, I, I as far as the, the the Mavericks, if in the more likely scenario that the Mavericks are down 0-2, some of the adjustments I would make is Carlisle also some. As you said, some potential substitutions. Maybe insert uh, Tim Hardaway Jr. over Richardson. You know, I would assume if they're down 0-2, Richardson isn't giving you what you would hope. Maybe um, based on the the trade, and you know, perhaps uh, perhaps dust off Trey Burke in this series and see if if you can just sort of outscore your opposition at times. Uh, obviously, I think a, a pretty simple one if. You know the the more egalitarian uh, style offense is not working. Then just you know really rely that much more on Doncic, do more even more match hunting than you have previously. Uh, but but yeah, those are those are kind of the things that that I would consider. And yeah, as you said, I know Carlisle uh, Carlisle likes to go to zone uh, throughout his career, but in this matchup, I mean the with the way the Clippers shoot the basketball, I. I just I frankly don't think zone is an option
1: it's 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 interesting because the way they take zone off the table is far different from how Denver takes zone off the table but neither option is really a presentable answer to to any of the question now granted I I wouldn't be surprised if Carlisle at least throws it out there when one of Kawhi or George is off the floor um you know, maybe they can, they can rotate and, and stay fundamentally sound and generate like Reggie Jackson threes. And and they probably live with that. Or even if they live with Beverly threes, they'll probably live with that, but you don't want to end up with like a majority of the Clippers shooting, <laughs> shooting three pointers the way they've been shooting this year.
0: All right. So let's get to the predictions and, and you've gone first the last couple of times. So I will, I will take the lead here. And my prediction is that this series is, I think it's going to be pretty similar from a competitive standpoint to last year's series. And I've got the Clippers taking it in six.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm leaning, I'm, I'm leaning back and forth between uh, the Clippers going in five or six. Um, but I tend to agree, you know, six is on the safer side with just how Lucas played and that the Clippers have had a little bit of a, a kind of storied history of not asserting their will on playoff series.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah. but and I, the fact I, that, you know, Porzingis <laughs> might, uh, you know, would you, at least if you're a Dallas fan, you would hope that Porzingis will be healthy for the entire series this time around.
1: And and this is one of the interesting things too, right? Because Porzingis provides such a just monster monster lift um, when he gives them his normal offensive juice. You know, he has a couple of games this year where he's really flashed like the guy they traded to, you know, unprotected first round picks for. basically. Um, you know, seven foot three ability to shoot three pointers and, and do that sort of thing. But it's hard for me to get past just the wing depth. And I love Luca, but you know, I, I'm probably going to lean Clippers in five. Um, obviously not going to be shocked if they get two. I would be really surprised if this series goes seven and I would be
0: pretty shocked
1: if, if the Mavericks won this series.
0: Yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm in total agreement there. So let's get to the, the last and final series. I think the series that we're both most excited for yeah. Uh, finally, after they've both in the league been in the league for like 16, 17 plus years, LeBron and Chris Paul are going to be in a, uh, in a playoff series against each other. And just looking at the, um, the, the, the team statistics heading into this, Phoenix finishing the season, second in the NBA in record with a 51 and 21 mark, sixth in offense, sixth in defense, third in the NBA in net rating at plus 6.2. The Lakers, uh, despite uh, missing LeBron and Anthony Davis for extended periods, finished with a 42 and 30 mark, 23rd in offense, second in defense, according to Cleaning the Glass, and eighth in net rating at positive 2.8. And out of the regular season matchups, Phoenix won two out of three, but uh, we were talking beforehand that mo- I think in all three or you, you said this, that in all three matchups, one of LeBron or Anthony Davis was missing for for L.A.
1: And it's it's one of those things where we talked about this uh, kind of at the beginning of the Portland Denver series. But I know we're both so excited for this series. This series has the same kind of 50 50 team quality toss up feel. These are just awesome basketball teams the difference between kind of the Portland Denver series is that there's no LeBron like smoking gun hovering over the series right. and and it it, it kind of just lingers over the series right because these teams you know on paper are really even like they just are really even Phoenix is so good so well coached they are so versatile in everything they're able to do offensively and defensively this is a team with that basically kind of figured out how they needed to play in the bubble. And then basically just super maximized their one week spot into like a massive strength, upgrading Rubio to Chris Paul and Rubio's a good player, but basically they were like, this lineup works and it will work way better if we just make the swing right now. Um, and they went all in on their bubble lineup with, you know, Mikhail and they, you know, Cam Johnson, they added Crowder, but the LeBron factor of just he just doesn't lose first round playoff series <laughs> just really lingers over the series and it's such a brutal draw in the 7-2 because in reality the Lakers are a 1 seed if LeBron and AD are healthy or a 2 seed um and this is a second round matchup so to see them in round 1 as your first, you know, if you're Booker, if you're Bridges, if you're uh, Johnson, Eaton, this is their first, you know, feet to the fire playoff moment. Um, and you know, obviously, this is the benefit of having a guy like Chris Paul and, and guys who have been there, like a Jay Crowder. Um, but playing LeBron in the playoffs is a whole different ball game, and the Lakers are so experienced. Obviously, this is you know the defending champs, and a lot of these dudes. Um, we're on either last year's championship team or even guys they added like Mark Gasol have won championships before. Um, so it's just a really awesome series from an X's and O's perspective. Um, I'm excited to get into it. I think that uh, the league is probably rooting pretty hard for the Lakers, but I think there's going to be a healthy portion of NBA fans that aren't LeBron stands that are rooting pretty hard for Phoenix, um, especially uh, I'll call it, you know my, uh, our people and my people especially uh, you know basketball nerd twitter loves them some chris paul um, yeah.
0: and so I, oh yeah there's there's not many people that like chris paul more than i do i can i can assure you that
1: I, yeah there's i was i think there's there's going to be a pretty uh, heavy tangent of people that are rooting hard for chris paul to get his in this series so i'm just excited to get into it it's going to be awesome and and this is one of the better series we're going to get in the entire playoffs
0: yeah, that's why that play in between the Lakers and Warriors was so crucial, because while, yes, this Suns team, as we, we both agree, is an excellent basketball team. You know, if, if you think of the Lakers path to, say, the conference finals as, you know, playing the Suns and then playing the winner of the Blazers and Nuggets without Jamal Murray, really, it's not like that much more difficult than a typical Western Conference playoff run would be you just have to kind of flip the matchups where they're getting the tougher matchup right away and the easier sort of what you would anticipate a a normal first round matchup for a home court team in the second round yeah but I guess here's a question I have for you Brett I mean obviously everyone was so excited to see okay you know now that LeBron and AD are back how does this Lakers team look after watching that play game against the Warriors, are you more or less optimistic about the Lakers chances than you were heading into that game?
1: It, it's probably it's probably a cop out to say this, but a, about what I thought I, I, about what I thought the Lakers would look like I, I think it's pretty clear you know we've watched so much LeBron since he came into the league and And I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to tell that he's not the same athletically right now as he normally is. He's not exploding to the rim the way he normally is. I mean, I think you could see it on some of those drives yesterday. He was rusty. Like this is a guy that doesn't get pushed around ever by Andrew Wiggins or by, you know, he doesn't get moved off spots by Juan Toscano Anderson. And yesterday he didn't have that same lift off that ankle that he normally does. Um, But at the same time, you know, this is kind of the magic of how just uh, incredible a basketball player he is. He can still just kind of feel his way into dominating games um, in his own way. And he's at the point in his career where he's extremely comfortable taking late game shots. You're never worried that he's going to be able to get a shot off. He can create from any spot on the floor. Um, and honestly, I, I think it's noticeable with this Lakers team that he really trusts his teammates. Like, He, and not just the AD teammates, like he really trusts Caruso and Schroeder and, um, you know, Kuzma and THT and, and even, you know, Wes Matthews to an extent. And so I think that, you know, this is not the peak version of LeBron. I mean, we're well away from where that's ever going to be again. Um, But I still think that when I watch the Lakers, especially that third quarter that's what scares me from the Phoenix perspective is that when that team decides like we're locking in, we're clamping, we're dominating the perimeter, their versatility and length on the perimeter, the way they're interconnected. And then the fact that just AB is so, so great on that end, he cleans up mistakes. He protects the rim. He could switch. Um, It's just such an advantage that, you know, two, three teams tops in the league have. Uh, in terms of this, we talked about the warriors with Draymond as a playoff defender. Um, You know, AD is right up there too, as just the guy you would just die to have in a playoff series. He can cover every player, um, the timing, he doesn't foul. So that's kind of the way I, I watched in watching the Lakers yesterday. I'm not necessarily worried or like, Oh wow, they're fine. But I, I just kind of think they're right at the level I thought they'd be. And I think they will be better in this
0: series. Yeah. The, um, Speaking from, you know, to be optimistic about the Suns' chances in this series, a few things that you talked about that third quarter in that uh, Lakers-Warriors game where I think the Warriors had something like 14 or 15 turnovers in the second half, and that really fed into how the Lakers like to play, you know, winning off of their defense, getting out in transition. Um, you know, essentially, I've, I've described this Lakers team uh, in this fashion before, but kind of like a counter-attacking team in sure. soccer. Um, but Phoenix, uh, in large part because of Chris Paul, are an incredibly low turnover team. They were fourth in the NBA in turnover percentage. Um, Chris Paul, you know, has, has always been one of the best in terms of assist to turnover ratio. Um, and also, Phoenix is a very good transition defense. They were second in opponent, in opponent transition frequency. So not only do they not turn the basketball over, but they get back. And then the, the other big thing that I think the Lakers really rely on. Come playoff time, is their offensive rebounding, and the Suns are a strong defensive rebounding team. They were ninth in the NBA on the defensive glass. So, a lot of the strength that the Lakers rely on to win come playoff time, the Suns, you know, sort of with their strengths counteract that to an extent. And, and there's, you know, you got into the transition thing, which is something I definitely wanted
1: to hit on. But when you get into the half court, um, this is kind of interesting just because it goes, it's it's a little counterintuitive to a lot of elements of basketball today, but the Suns rely on mid-range shots. They are by far the best team in terms of um, team quality relative to how many mid-range shots they are shooting. So, you know, strictly talking post-trade deadline um, Phoenix this year was second in long mid-range attempts post-deadline 15.4% of their shots post deadline came from the long mid range area. They were first in make percentage. So they have dudes that hit long mid range shots. And on the flip side, the way the Lakers like to defend the Lakers, I believe were 22nd in the league in terms of yeah 22nd in the league in terms of how frequently they gave up these shots. Um, So it's going to be a really, really interesting give and take from the Phoenix side of, Hey, We like to shoot these shots. We have guys that make these shots, but it's hard to win a playoff series to begin with relying on the mid-range game. And when you get to the fact that like, it's really hard to stop the Lakers in general, um, you're going to have to shoot like a super elite mid-range team at that pace, but kind of an interesting give and take there where it's something the Lakers are clearly willing to kind of concede those shots in most aspects. Um, And the Suns are more than willing to take them and have been hitting them at a pretty high rate this
0: season. Well, yeah, I mean, that all comes down to Paul and Booker are two of the best yeah. mid-range shot makers in the NBA. They both shot, I believe, over 50% from mid-range this season. So yeah, it's um, it's one of those things where, yeah, as a defense going into a series against Phoenix, you have to sort of, um, uh, you have to rewire how you, you operate. And uh, you, you brought up the, the Anthony Davis effect as a defensive player. I think he's going to be so crucial. And we saw this a bit in last year's finals where, um, you know, we, we certainly didn't see a healthy version of Goran Dragic. But what we did see of Goran Dragic, you know, for most of that Eastern Conference run, he was just killing teams with that floater game, the, the mid-range pull-up game. And against the Lakers, Davis mostly just took that away with his length, his athleticism, his ability to move. So that will be fascinating to see just how much Anthony Davis can take away from that son's offense. I I have a feeling from like what we've talked about and just my gut instincts heading into this series that this will be a very much a defensive affair.
1: And I think I think the thing that's interesting that you hit on with AD is is how the Lakers choose to deploy him in this series because AD's been used recently. I'm thinking about the game they played an absolutely awesome game without LeBron um, about two weeks ago or maybe a week and a half ago against the Knicks, where AD was guarding Julius Randle for most of you know the fourth quarter and a lot of the third quarter, and he just did an absolutely fantastic job on him in isolation. Um, and it's one of those things where the the Suns don't really have a forward that you need him for that. Um, I feel like he's going to be a lot more of a helper in this series. Um, but also kind of how the Lakers choose to deploy him. Uh, or are they going to play a lot of him at the five? This series is always the biggest Vogel question, right? Um, is Vogel going to commit to a, a steady dose of him at the five, or are they going to sprinkle in, you know, lineups with Andre Drummond and montres Terrell. And, you know, that could be a big impactful moment in the series, but AD playing at the five, um, Aiton has been a very, very solid player this year. Um, I think he's not necessarily taken a jump, but he's seen like the normal rate of improvement you'd want in a young player offensively. Um, And I do think that, you know, when you have a guy like Anthony Davis, I'm curious if they choose to go small and deploy him on Ayton or if they feel comfortable with a Gasol or a Harrell or a Drummond on Aiton and they choose to use... Davis is kind of like a roaming helper off of either a Johnson or a Bridges type thing. Um, That also helps snuff out some of those one, three, one, four pick and
0: rolls. Yeah. I think that's going to be, I think very quickly, my guess will be very quickly Vogel's going to figure out that I can't play these traditional centers in this series because Chris Paul and Devin Booker, I mean, as soon as you get into the drop back scheme, that traditional defensive pick and roll coverage, that's when they're passing they're playmaking, they're playmaking their mid range game. Paul is an expert of snaking those pick and rolls and getting to his spot. And if he knows you haven't switched, he's just going to get that shot and he's going to knock him down. Same with Booker. Um, so I think very quickly they're going to have to start to rely on more Davis at the five and switching those actions. And then that's where the value of Aiton as an offensive player comes in. Because now all of a sudden, if you have Dennis Schroeder or KCP guarding Aiton, his offensive rebounding, his post game, uh, you know, a lot of people, I know the, the dunked on guys give Aiton a hard time because he always takes turnaround jumpers. But, you know, against smaller guys, he's pretty good. Just, you know, five, 10 feet with that right hand jump hook. He's got good touch. So that's where I think Aiton's value really comes into play. Uh, but, but yeah, that whole give and take of, you know, how much is uh, Vogel going to play the likes of Drummond and Harrell and Gasol is going to be so fascinating because, yeah, I think that as soon as you start playing those traditional centers heavy minutes, the Suns offense is able to to get going then. And one of the
1: interesting things is kind of uh, you see this in, in different playoff series and it's always it always comes down to how it's officiated in the first quarter. But I, I am curious because Chris Paul does this, too. But the Lakers really, really did it in that play-in game with Steph, and they've done it – LeBron teams have done it with really Steph teams, and they did it with Harden in in last year's series. They are handsy at the level of the screen, Um, and how that gets officiated early in the game kind of sets the tone for how that's going to play out. Um, I'm curious to see how the Lakers treat Chris Paul ball screens when Anthony Davis is playing at the five, because I do think that there's a real ask, um, and something that would be a concern of me is – how good and how comfortable is Aiton as a short roll creator? I think you hit it best. He is kind of comfortable shooting touch mid-range shots. Um, I don't think he's like a non-confident offensive player. I think he's confident moving downhill. But I do question in a playoff setting, higher intensity, more scrambled defense, better players on the floor. How does he operate as a short roller? Um, now, granted, Phoenix always seems to counteract this, unlike with like a guy like Dame they don't set their screens super far out from the basket. So it's not like he has this incredibly long ramp to run down when he's catching a, a downhill short roll. But I do think it's something that's going to be interesting where is it a lot of pocket pass eating short mid range jumpers? Um, is that kind of the way that the Lakers facilitate the ball out of Chris Paul's hands or even out of uh, Booker's hands in lineups where the two of them are being staggered and, and that sort of thing. And that, that kind of gets into how, Phoenix will counter by using their bench lineup um, in this series that I, th- I think is going to be quite interesting.
0: Yeah, I trust Aiden in that short role because, yes, I think he's competent as a shooter. He's competent, you know. He's I think he's a smooth athlete in terms of if he's got a head of steam and he catches the ball, he can just take a one two and go straight up and dunk. He's not like a Tristan Thompson where he's got to catch it, bend his knees, gather up, and and allow the defense to sort of get back. And I think he's improved as a passer as well. He's not, he's not an amazing passer, but I think he can make the, yeah. the, the, the pass to the corner or the wing if the defense sags down to stop him. Um, but, yeah, that, that, again, gets into the whole situation where the Suns offense finished sixth because I think a lot of defenses have to play that, that traditional defensive scheme, and it allows them to utilize their passing and play that beautiful game where you're swing, swing, and guys are hitting threes, and Paul's getting to his mid range, and they're they're finding Aiden for those alley oops. Um, but if the Lakers with the Lakers have the ability with Davis at the five and LeBron at the four to sort of muck things up, make it more of an isolation affair, and that's where you know are Chris Paul and Devin Booker good enough? if it becomes just an isolation game where on one end the Lakers are posting LeBron and AD every possession and on the other end, the Suns are isolating with Paul and Booker against, you know, the Lakers weakest guys, like a, like a dead, Schroeder can, can they get enough offense through that means? I think that's going to be sort of the crux of the series.
1: And, And it's one of those things where, you know, We were just talking about Aiden in terms of his impact as an offensive player, but he's also actually made some pretty significant defensive uh, impactful leaps this year. And I do think that on the flip side of this equation, right? Like there is no greater challenge in pick and roll in the playoffs other than maybe Curry to a LeBron James operated spread pick and roll. That guy has seen every coverage you can throw times a million. He knows where everyone's rotating to. He's hitting shooters. He's getting downhill and, and this kind of hits twofold, right? Is Aiton, you know, how Phoenix chooses to deploy him in his minutes, um, in that one five, you know, LeBron AD pick and roll essentially, um, is pretty important. Do you have him come up to the level? Are you comfortable with them switching? Um, if LeBron doesn't like look at his most athletic and just backing off and, and hoping LeBron settles for long jumpers, um, kind of how Monty chooses to deploy him in this series, especially in game one is something that I'm going to be looking for. Um, and something I think is really fascinating because we didn't get a clean look in the regular season as to how they would cover this. Um, it's one of those series where you know, you could, you could dive through the film from the regular season, but it's not going to tell you a ton because we just didn't see LeBron and Anthony Davis. And you're going to play differently when those guys are out there. So how money chooses to deploy Eaton, how he chooses to do, you know, bridges, Johnson and Crowder um, along that wing kind of threshold with LeBron. I'm super interested in that. And I'm curious where you think that's going to go starting in game one as well.
0: Yeah, I, uh, you know, as far as the eight and switching, I would be, I would be comfortable at times. I wouldn't say to do it every time, have him switch on to LeBron, but you know, from, from what I've seen of him this year, I thought he was a lot better in terms of switching on to like, you know, somewhat mobile forwards, you know, I thought he did a really good job against guys like Pascal Siakam this year, and even Julius Randall a little bit, um, you know, those big forwards. So I think he can do a reasonable job in a pinch against LeBron. Would I want him doing that every possession? Probably not. Yeah. But um, the, The switches where I'm worried about Aiden is against those real quick guards. I do not want him switching on to a guy like Dennis Schroeder. I think he'll get blown by in those situations, especially when you've got guards that take him all the way out beyond the three-point line and then, you know, get a head start. I think that's where he really struggled. But, um, yeah, I, I actually like Aiton defensively in this series, and I even like the Suns' defensive scheme in this series. The dropback scheme against this Lakers team, again, without any great off-the-dribble shooting threats, I think works reasonably well. Um, the The biggest challenge, I think, for, for Aiton is going to be defending the post. And again, if the Lakers go with AD at the five, he's going to be defending a lot of post-ups and, you know, we could see a game swing on whether or not Aiton is able to, you know, is able to stay out of foul trouble or not.
1: And and I think, I think we kind of hit on this earlier in terms of his improvement, but you can really see, you can see the improvement in a lot of the impact stats or even the predictive stats. I know that, um, you know, if you looked at Darko, his defensive projection um, in that area has gone up pretty significantly this season and and is actually like currently kind of at its all time high. but how they choose to kind of deploy him. And also, you know, you mentioned it here, but you know, the way that LeBron gets officiated, how does that factor into a guy like Aiton? If he's in early foul trouble, is Monty going to have a quick trigger on him? Are we going to see a lot of Frank Kaminsky if that's the case? Um, These are pretty important questions for the Suns to answer early, because that is the one area uh, where if you're Monty Williams, you're in real, real, real danger when you start, kind of moving down their big guy lineup um, especially given how good the Lakers are at the rim like that is a team that has so many dudes that put pressure on the rim whether it's Davis with his vertical gravity LeBron downhill Caruso who's fantastic downhill Schroeder downhill even guys like Talon Horton Tucker who have flashed like a pretty significant amount of shake off the dribble and and physicality getting to the rim they just have dudes that can get there um, and if you're not playing kind of big physical wings to match up with them, you're in some trouble. And I think that that's that's gonna be a big decision for Monty. I think you hit the nail on the head with foul trouble. Um, even not just including Eaton with Bridges and with Johnson and with Crowder, they're gonna need those guys on the floor in this series a lot.
0: Yeah. Um the the Suns, you know, they're they're six in the defense for a reason. I don't think they have, I mean, outside of Mikel Bridges, who I think is an all defensive level guy. I think Chris Paul maybe is on the periphery of that. Um, they, they don't have like, just like amazing individual talent. I think it, it, it just more as a situation where, yeah, they don't have any weak links yeah. and they're connected as a unit. They will help at the rim. They're going to have guys in the right spots. So um, yeah, again, you, you make a great point. The Lakers are just going to relentlessly attack the basket and, We'll see if the Suns can hold up. I I feel like they can to a certain extent. And and their acquisitions this season, not only getting Jay Crowder for the LeBron matchup, is big, but Tory Craig, another underrated addition. I think he's going to see some minutes. Uh again, especially if a guy like Crowder gets in foul trouble to have another guy that isn't just going to get bulldozed to the rim is is so crucial. And Mikhail Bridges as well. I mean. Um, we saw Andrew Wiggins do a pretty good job on LeBron. I think Mikel Bridges, you know, he's, he's a little slight, uh, for what you would want against LeBron, but he's, he's absolutely a very talented, lengthy defender. So I think the Suns have some, some pretty good strengths defensively at the right spots to, to deal with this Lakers offensive attack.
1: and, and, it's always, it's always a, a, a difficult game to go back in time and play this game, but, but it's something interesting. And I, I know I referenced it a couple of times throughout the season, but it's just how much more confident would you feel about this Phoenix team entering this playoff run? If Halliburton's in their rotation, oh, and yeah. it, it's hard to look back on it that way because it's, it's so, it's such a key piece that they could have. Um, and this isn't necessarily like a you know, oh, well, no one would like, that was kind of the choice that everyone thought they were about to make. So it's, it's much more of like a real time look, right? And I I think about a guy like him in a playoff series like this, it's like, how much better would I feel if they just had another guy that could shoot that was a rangy defender? That's smart. Um, And by the way, on a lesser extent, right, even a guy like Devin Bissell, who's an awesome defender in San Antonio that they passed on, um, that I loved in pre draft, he's another guy, right? It's like, I think you hit the nail on the head with Craig. You can't have enough kind of big, physical, lengthy guys for LeBron in a series like this. Like you just need to be able to throw bodies at him in, in a way that even when he was, you know, more athletically in his prime, the Warriors did. Like they could throw Iguodala, throw Draymond, but then they could also throw Livingston and Clay, just long guys to like bump him and bother him and contest shots and and be annoying around him. And I I just I'm curious, you know, if we look back on this Phoenix team's run, how different we would look at it if they just had, like, one more guy like that. And granted, they might get a guy like that this offseason. They might, you know, trade for another piece or or continue to make their push, whatever. Um, But it's just kind of an interesting NBA sliding door right here where it's, like, they pretty tangibly had a guy on the board that, like, really fits what they could use in this series. Um, One clearly being better than the other, but two guys that would really help them. And instead, they kind of have a non-impact guy for now um that's kind of just filling those minutes as like a third string center so um it's that's something that you know it's hard for me to watch phoenix this year and not envision uh that like i think a lot of people have done that with the knicks this year uh with the Obi Toppin pick but at the same time you know it's hard to envision them also picking emmanuel quickly if they had picked a guard with their first pick type thing so it's phoenix's was much more just like it was a sliding door. Like this was their pick type thing.
0: Um, yeah. I mean, and and frankly, the, their draft pick is their fourth center. If you count (laughs) Aiden and Sarich and Kaminsky. Um, (laughs) so yeah, I was, I was perplexed at that at the time, not only as you said, for what he could, what Halliburton could do to help them now, but as the heir apparent to Chris Paul, they obviously need that and that's just missing on their roster. Um, but I, I guess the, uh, a guy that sort of is in that role for this team that I think of as let's get, we can get to the kind of the X factor portion of this now is campaign. I think he's going to be a guy that, yes, he can shoot the three. He's got uh, some juice off the bounce. He's quick. Um, he's going to be a guy that they, they need because yeah, like, as I said, if, if the Lakers are playing a lot of Davis at the five and switching a lot of the times, it might come down to some of these other guys like your Mikhail bridges, your, your uh, campaigns, your Cam Johnson's making some plays against some of the Lakers' weaker defenders on the floor to give the Suns enough offense to stay afloat. So obviously, campaigns a big one. Um, as far as the the Lakers, I think a, a, a fun X factor in this series. Again, if if they're thinking more of the what I'm thinking is that they'll need to switch more. Is is Marquise Morris going to get some run?
1: I think, I think you hit the, day. and before I even get going on campaign, I think it's worth just giving him his flowers. This is a guy that was almost out of the league, like, yeah. like as close to out of the league as you can basically get, he gets kind of like that, uh, essentially like last shot bubble run. And it's just like goes from being not even like bad, like legitimately one of the worst rotation guys we had in the league to being a genuinely above average backup. Yeah, it just like basically, and it's people say, Oh, well, it doesn't happen overnight, it's whatever. It was from a game to game perspective, it was basically overnight. Like the last time we had seen him, he wasn't good. He comes back in the bubble, he's good, and then maintains it through this season to the point where he's like an actual worthy discussion as an impact player in a major West playoff series. Um, I think his kind of impact, if he shoots the ball well in this series it's going to be major. I'm not sure that I necessarily see him as like the type of guy that's going to generate like multiple big games where he's getting into the lane. But I do think you hit the nail on the head where in backup lineups, um, he can kind of create space around the three point line. He gets other people going. He's high energy. The teammates like definitely seem to feed off him. Um, and, and from that perspective, I, I think for Phoenix, he would definitely be up there as a guy that's going to be super important on the Lakers. End, I'm I'm not sure I necessarily agree on the, on the Marquis Morris side of it, um, just in terms of dusting him off. I probably view that more as a, as a Wes Matthews, uh, like X-factor spot, um, just from the perspective of same, same idea where I think you saw it in that playoff game where it was your playing game just now where Vogel really trusted him in like big spots defensively. Like when they wanted to go to that like super defensive lineup with Caruso and Matthews and, and LeBron and AD. And, and I, I think Kuzma was the, maybe the fourth wing or something. Um, He's just the type of guy that is, he just has like that institutional defensive knowledge, really savvy fights over screens as good as most players in the NBA, even at like a pretty advanced age with all these injuries building up over his career. Um, I think that he's going to be a guy. I love that signing in the preseason. Um, I think that, you know, he was kind of inconsistent and up and down with the Lakers, but I do think that this is kind of, again, as we've talked about with the Covingtons and the Canards and the, you know, however many, this is the type of signing that they paid that guy for series like this, where he's going to spend, you know, six, seven minutes guarding Devin Booker in big spots. um, And that's going to be his job. And and that's what he does. Well, he's always done it well. And they're going to ask him to knock down corner threes off, of, off of LeBron spread, pick and roll. And and I think that if he's effective in that um, the Lakers are going to be in a super good spot.
0: Yeah. The, the only other guy I feel like that we haven't really talked about much that that warrants mentioning is cam Johnson. And there's an issue with his uh, availability and stuff. He's coming off. I believe it was a left wrist or no right wrist shooting wrist issue. Um, and apparently he got the cast off pretty recently, but I don't believe he played towards the end of the regular season, but there's uh, you know, I think he's a key guy on those bench units just to give them uh, that additional boost of floor spacing. And when he was out there and as much as I like Torrey Craig, when Craig was just taking all of those minutes, um, I think the offense suffered a little bit because of that.
1: And I, I think that we, we've kind of discussed this with how they had that run in the bubble last year, but just the optimal lineup for them is really those two guards, Bridges Johnson, eating, spreading the floor. It's just, it's a really well-fitting, every player fits a very specific role on both ends of the floor. Um, they complement each other really well. Um, and honestly, there's some interchangeability between Johnson and Crowder, um, that's helpful in how they made that signing. And even a little bit in terms of like stuff, Craig gives them that maybe uh, Johnson doesn't and vice versa. But I do agree just Johnson's ability to space, not just to the three point line, but that he can extend even further to three feet out all that extra pockets, um, all those extra pockets of space that you create for guys like Paul and Booker, who are just mid range assassins um really starts to add up over the course of a game um you know this is obviously much more of a modern adjustment that we've seen in the nba the last five years where you know it never used to be a thing where guys would space further than the line it just wasn't it didn't seem plausible and now it's like actually like give up the extra you know 0.7 percent uh, or give up the extra percent for the two three feet of space we'll, we'll score more points per possession on the aggregate and i think that a guy like cam johnson who has legitimate deep nba range um he's going to be so critical in this series and if he doesn't really have it again like they're similarly going to be a just from a depth perspective but also just they need that guy to knock down shots in this series like they rely on his scoring they feed off his outside shooting they also feed off him being a really smart player next to bridges um they just complement each other really well on the wing so I think you kind of, you kind of nailed that. It's going to be super important that he's healthy and and ready to go. And I think he got the cast off on Monday. So I'm hoping that that's the case.
0: Yeah. And, and defensively he's nothing special, but he's got good size and compared to some of the alternative options that they, they might throw out instead of him, like an Etuan Moore, um, or a Langston Galloway, I think he's just a little bit a better presence on the defensive end as well than those guys. So, um, Let's get to that uh, down 0-2 in the series adjustment. We, we got so excited to talk about this series, we didn't even break down which team we were respectively. But I'm, I'm going to act as uh, Frank Vogel and the Lakers, and um, you're going to act as uh, Monty Williams and the Suns. And I'll, I'll start with, with kind of my thoughts. If the Lakers lose both in Phoenix and go down 0-2, I think one of the, the, the obvious things will be if they, if they don't do it immediately or in game two is to just remove the centers from the rotation, just start immediately with AD at the five. And, and as I said, um, you know, maybe play Markef Morris with uh, some of the second units to, to be able to continue to just switch and avoid playing that uh, traditional drop back scheme. And then, you know, also just, posting up whoever has a a mismatch between LeBron and Anthony Davis, and just, you know, basically spamming that over and over again and seeing what the Suns are going to do about that. Um, That was one of the things I noticed just watching a little bit of that most recent matchup where the Lakers had Davis, but no LeBron is they, they posted Davis and the sun's almost just basically immediately doubled and it created some open looks. So that, that would be a way, especially if the offense is struggling, just, you know, go to your bread and butter right at, right out of the gate, go to your best players and, and help them create, uh, create advantage opportunities. And yeah, the, you know, that, that also plays into the whole idea of, okay, if Aiton is killing us, uh, you know, posting up Davis against Aiton and, and potentially trying to get him in foul trouble only goes to the Lakers benefit.
1: So, so kind of the irony from my perspective is that if the Suns are down 0-2, my guess is that they're going to be just getting absolutely killed at the rim and on the glass, um, kind of the things that the, the way the Lakers are just able to bully certain teams um, with their just front court physicality. Um, so kind of the 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 switch I was thinking if they're down 0-2 is uh, Phoenix getting away from their big guys and going to kind of a super, super small uh, five out lineup that at least tangibly forces Davis away from the rim. Now the tricky part with this is that Paul and Booker don't make their bones at the rim the way, you know, Lillard's or Kyrie Irvings or Hardens do. So you're not generating as much value by, you know, going to like a Kaminsky or even going to like a super, super small lineup with Paul Booker, Bridges, Johnson, Crowder, or Craig, right? Um, but at the same time, just the ability. Um, and it's ironic because they lost, but kind of the way that the Rockets figured out, like no team is gonna have the Lakers talent to compete with them by shooting twos. So let's just try to shoot as many threes as humanly possible against them. I think if Phoenix is down 0-2, um, that's the type of strategy that honestly they should kind of employ. They should be hunting threes virtually every time down. Um, and by proxy of that, they might be able to create more basket opportunities for guys like Booker um, with a spaced out floor, especially if AD is kind of forced to hug, you know, a Crowder or a, or a Cam, or, or even if they go to like a Kaminsky Um, And then on the defensive end, it it almost always seems counterintuitive just because of how great he is. But sometimes I just think the lesser of, you know, all evils is to let Anthony Davis post up and shoot turnarounds. He's fantastic at it. Um, But I think like you saw this last year in the Heat series, they kind of went to that and he burned them and he made mid-range shots. But if the Lakers are cooking you by getting, you know, layups and alley-oop dunks and free throws and corner threes – from an efficiency standpoint, like sometimes you got to just live with the guy that shoots 47, 48% from the mid range or 45% from the mid range and hope he has one or two off games that way. Um, But at least by, and I think the way that you encourage this is you put a guy that's slightly smaller on Davis, whether it's a Crowder or Craig, and you basically just hope the Lakers play exclusively through the post um, rather than playing through kind of that spread pick and roll that they just eviscerate everybody with. But I mean, if Phoenix starts the series down 0-2 heading back to Los Angeles I, again like that's you're going to need to try some some drastic stuff uh to turn that series around cuz in all likelihood you're going to be going down 3-0 pretty quickly
0: yeah i i honestly do like the idea of like crowder at the 4 and craig at the 5 against yeah. certain teams i don't know if i love it against the yeah, lakers maybe. yeah but uh um, yeah, I mean, I'm in total agreement about the whole AD thing. And yeah, he had the the bubble where he shot 50% from the mid range and was, re, you know, I, I think like close to 40% from three, just ridiculous. But for his career, like this season, he's shooting 43% from the mid range last year. That was 37. Um, I I'm right there with you. Like he, he doesn't have a great track record of just being an amazing shooter. So yeah, if, if, If him or LeBron beat you with jump shots, you just have to shake their hand and say, congrats.
1: Yeah. They say, I'm with you. You tip your cap and you say, you know, you're, this guy's better than, than anything we have. And, and that's it. But, you know, from the perspective of this, by the way, it does. And, and I think it's only fair just because of how good the Lakers are. When you evaluate this series, it, it definitely always seems like you're taking it from like a pessimistic Phoenix side, right? Um, And I think that's largely spun from the fact that they've just had this unbelievable season and they end up with like the worst of all the matchups of any of the teams in the West that were seeded one through four, Um, you know, and, and what that's kind of indicative of. Right. But I do think that if you're searching for optimism, if you're a Phoenix fan um, and like, okay, if we're going to beat the Lakers in a first round series, this is the Devin Booker breakout. Like Booker this year has been awesome like just really as an absolute assassin scorer he really broke out last year but he's been even better this year and there are certain guys who just take another leap in the playoffs and and it's not necessarily um to kind of use you know seth Partnow's thing from a couple weeks ago it's not necessarily improvement it's so much so as like you know a career year or in this case i'll call it like a career playoff performance right i think that The best example of this is like Jamal Murray last year. Like Jamal Murray wasn't that good as a player as like his natural outcome. He just happened to have like the playoffs of a lifetime and he's a really good player. Um, And there are guys that have that. And if you're going to win a series against LeBron, um, I think that the most likely way that happens is that's Devin Booker's time. Like Devin Booker has a series where he's just going absolutely bananas. The Lakers don't have a matchup that can check him. They have to kind of move stuff around defensively and the Suns are able to just repeatedly generate awesome looks because of the Lakers being kind of mispersonnelled defensively. Do I think that's how the series is going to play out? Probably not. But if the series goes that way, I think that's what would have happened. I think you're going to I don't necessarily think I see like God level, Chris Paul carrying Phoenix to a win. I just think Chris Paul is going to be Chris Paul and be great. Um, But I do think that if Phoenix is going to win this series, it's going to be Devin Booker basically taking that leap from, you know, I'm a really, really great scorer to, I am a first team, second team, all NBA level guard that you need to be taking seriously at this level type thing, because the Lakers have two guys like that. And Um, Phoenix in theory has two guys that could be that and and if they win that series I think you're going to have seen a performance like that
0: yeah Chris Paul like is a is a is a solid isolation player but it's more like he takes advantage of weak defenders and he can't really take advantage of excellent defenders whereas Booker yes has that capacity to score against perfect defense Uh, so so I I am in complete agreement there and and I'm pretty confident in Booker's ability as a playoff scorer. I think the, the, the biggest the biggest drop-offs you see from individual players in the postseason is guys that have, like, legit weaknesses in their offensive profile. But yeah. Booker can score at all three levels. He can drive right. He can drive left. He's got good footwork. He's got good touch. He's got a whole bunch of moves that he can go to in the post or in a, or off the dribble. So, yeah, I I trust Booker to have a a pretty good series, but it certainly is going to be a a challenge going up against the likes of this Lakers defense. So let's get to our series prediction. And uh, do you want to go first? You have me. I I can go first for this one. Yeah, go Uh, for
1: it. I am. I am going to take uh, the Lakers in six. Um, Not obviously the the sexiest pick for this series, um, but just in terms of the, team quality at the defensive level guys that I trust uh, in the playoffs um, that have been there before doing it high level defensively. Um, And at the end of the day, just late game creation. I trust LeBron James more than, you know, most players that have ever played basketball. And, and honestly, um, you know, LeBron is obviously the X factor in most series because he just makes everything happen. He's the queen of the chessboard. Um, But I really think in this series, you know, we we talked about a bunch of role players in a lot of the other series, but the X factor is Anthony Davis in this series. He's just such a unique player that Phoenix doesn't have anyone for really, in my opinion, Um, in a way that, you know, we talked about with, with Denver, how Oh well, you know Nurkic will at least make Jokic work, I think, and, and you know he'll still get his, but he'll earn them and and things of that nature. I just don't think Phoenix has really anyone that could stop AD. I think we saw that in that last game where LeBron was out; he just killed them, absolutely killed them. Um, I, I think with LeBron, it's heightened, and, and so that that's where I'm leaning for for this particular series.
0: So I've got the same winner, but I actually am going Lakers in seven. Uh, I think this is going to be an incredibly competitive series. I think everyone's just saying, oh, this is so unfortunate for the Suns. You know, they, they have, they had this great season and uh, now they just have, they have to play the Lakers and it's over for them, but. I mean, this team in a regular season would be a high fifties win basketball team with a great net rating like this. And and again, like you know, I I always talk about with typically with championship caliber teams, you've got to be top ten on both ends of the floor. This team's nearly top five on both ends of the floor, like this is. And as we've talked about, they've got two All NBA caliber guys. So I think this is going to be a really competitive series. I think yeah, I think a lot of what Phoenix can uh, does well take some of some things away from what the Lakers like to do but in a game seven environment I, I'll take the Lakers experience I'll take their sort of more physical athletic style um and and I'll give them the edge there but yeah I think it's going to be fantastic it's probably my the the series I, I am most excited about on either side of the bracket
1: I think for me in terms of just uh so stepping, stepping out of my Knicks fandom for a second, where I, I actually do think from a closeness of team quality perspective, that might be the closest series in the entire first round, yeah. um, because I personally think the Hawks are a little bit better and the Knicks have home court to the point where the gap is probably closed. Um, so that's probably for me the closest, but in terms of just most excited, I mean, the the quality of basketball that will be played in this series should be higher than any other series we have in the first round. And I think you, you said it best. I mean, this is a Western conference playoff series, Western conference final series being played in round one, right? Like if the Lakers don't get hurt, this is a one seed and a three seed, not a two and a seven. Um, so it's, it's really like, uh, we, we talk about all the time. Oh, like we really want to see like the Lakers play, you know, the Clippers or the Lakers, but this is, awesome because we're actually going to get this match. Like we don't have to wait, like we get to see this matchup now, Um, you know, and and it's fascinating because, you know, narratively it's really impactful historically for the Chris Paul thing. It's really historically impactful just because LeBron is still chasing, you know, however many rings he feels he needs to get to. Um, It's interesting for AB's legacy, right? I mean, there's a big jump once you've won multiple times and, and there's a lot on the line for, you know, three at this point pretty historic players um so it's just going to be a super fun series to watch i I can't wait for it um i do think the fact that lebron isn't at 100 percent uh makes this series even tighter um which is almost good uh i think if lebron was operating on all cylinders at this point um i would feel i'd say i still think i would lean lakers in six but it would be like a lakers in six maybe five whereas right now i'm lakers in six maybe seven maybe phoenix um type thing. Um but yeah, I I'm just incredibly excited for that series. So maybe that's maybe that's a good way to end for the west. If you had to rank uh the the series in terms of excitement and then what second round matchups would most excite you? Uh where where do you land right now?
0: Okay, so yeah, I mean, I would say probably um yeah, as we as I said, Suns Lakers won. Um, I think Denver Portland is probably two. Then, then it would be Clippers, Dallas, unless it's, unless it's, uh, unless it's Utah golden state and that'd probably be number three Uh, and then Clippers Dallas. But if it's, if it's Utah Memphis, that would be last. And then as far as, uh, as far as second round series. um, Yeah. I, I love the idea of, of a Utah Clippers second round, what, what we potentially have lined up. And even though I think as far as Utah is concerned, the Clippers might be the worst possible second round matchup for them.
1: So the, the, I'd say for me, the one I'm probably most excited for uh, if it were to happen, and I know we had different picks for the winner. um, But if Denver is able to beat Portland, I would be pretty excited to watch another LA Denver series just because it would be so different without Murray and with Gordon. Um, The Nuggets would weirdly have added a guy to guard LeBron that they didn't, like Grant was good at it, but Gordon is a better defensive player. And MPJ is so much better (laughs) than he was in that series.
0: I mean, I'm just, I'm just bummed that Murray is out because I I would have loved to see just a rematch of that, of that with what Denver has, has done as as far as improving from internal development. And as, as you said, adding Gordon,
1: I probably would have, and I know it's, it's a little bit of a limb, but I I probably would have taken Denver to win the West. If Murray was healthy. Um, I think I agree with that. um, I just love that starting five. It's such a, it's just such a well-connecting unit. Um, so I guess we, you had mentioned this to me beforehand, who's your champ, (laughs) how do do you see it? How do you see it going?
0: Yeah. So I've got, I've got Lakers Clippers in the conference finals and I have the, uh, it is really tough. I've gone back and forth on this because prior to last year, prior to the, to the, the, uh, shutdown and the bubble, I had the Clippers. Uh, I do still feel like the Clippers are the most talented team in the NBA. But especially given that the Lakers are going to have multiple rounds to get into form, theoretically, prior to facing the Clippers, I think I'm going to go Lakers in seven in that Western Conference Finals. And then in in my Eastern Conference preview, I picked the Brooklyn Nets. And uh, in a a potential NBA Finals matchup, I've got the the nets beating the lakers in 7. So uh so
1: I'm there. I have I have the clippers uh I have the clippers over the lakers in the west finals. Um I too have the nets coming out of the east and I too have the nets winning the title. I think it's just one team has three generational offensive creators. Um if they're all healthy and it's a big if. <laughs> like it's it's a way bigger if than I think people realize um you know all jokes people want to make aside about you know how the nets have load managed and you know how Kyrie is and and whatever that is on the serious note Durant is the real thing there because the Achilles injury he had the wear and tear that injury is real it's always lingering in the background when I'm watching the nets um it's the one I always think about when it's like why are they holding him out another month um but if that guy is healthy Kyrie's healthy Harden's healthy that team is so talented when you add Joe Harris and Claxton and all the small pieces around um I think they're your winner I think the Clippers versus them would be just an absolutely unbelievable series and obviously if the Lakers round out into form over the next month uh hard to be upset if it's LeBron Davis Durant Kyrie and Harden on the floor yeah uh, for the finals but either way that that series plays out um I think the nets are going to win the title if they're healthy. Um, but super fun. I I think what's cool is I'm probably more excited about the first round in the West and I'm probably more excited about the second and third round in the East.
0: Um, Milwaukee, Milwaukee, Brooklyn in the second round. I am very much looking forward to hopefully that, that pans out that way, but once uh, we
1: get to the, yeah, if Milwaukee takes care of business, um, I am the most excited for the the East second round outside and for the first round outside of obviously, I mean, I'm the most excited of all this for uh Knicks Hawks, but you know, my team aside from, from the outsider stuff, um, I just think that the East second round could be just so fun. <laughs> from from
0: that Absolutely. Team. It's going to be a, it's going to be a blast for the next month or two, Brett. Thank you so much for we've, yeah, we've recorded for season. over two hours that I can't thank you enough for coming on and taking the time. This was great. I loved it. Thanks so much for listening to Duncan Dynasty. Please, if you can, if you have a moment, go to iTunes and uh, give us a rating and review, preferably five stars, and uh, if you could give any thoughts about what you like about the show, that would be much appreciated. We are also on Spotify, so uh, you can give us a rating on there as well. If you'd like to find some other content outside of this podcast, you can find me on twitter at Garrett Bougay. that's g-a-r-r-e-t-t-b-u-g-a-y i will be uh tweeting various uh, mba thoughts as well as some some thoughts on some other uh, interests of mine including soccer and film and television so uh if you're looking for some of my takes throughout the the course of the week you can find me there you can find my co-host corbin ford on twitter at corbin nba that's c-o-r-b-a-n-n-b-a so uh he uh he does a does a good job on twitter as well he's very active i'm also doing uh some work as a contributor for rip city project which uh does all things blazers so if you're looking for some written content you can check those websites out Corbin also does his own pod on the side called NBA today uh, he uh, he does some some fun work over there so so please I encourage you to check that out but uh, thanks so much again for for listening and have a great rest of your day